Welcome. I am your host, Manpreet, a.k.a. MMA Lock of the Night, and your boy on social media, at MMALOTN, joined by my guy, as always, John Stargarian. You guys can follow him at MMAFox, as you see right there under his face. Uh, we are here propping you up for UFC London, which is headlined by a heavyweight fight between Alexander Volkov and Tom Aspinall. Big step up, big test for Mr. Aspinall, who seems to have a ton of steam and a ton of love behind him. John, this is one of those spots where we love to break it down and just uh, try to bring people back to earth in terms of some hype that is uh, coming on people. Not, not just the Aspinall side of things, right? There's a couple other guys on this card that have a ton of hype on their name. Uh, what is your... You know, first and foremost, welcome back. Uh, and secondly, what are your thoughts on on this card from a fan's perspective? Yeah, I'm pumped to talk about it. Uh, you know, first of all, it's awesome we get an afternoon card on the East Coast. You oh know, those... yes, 1 p.m. Eastern start time for the prelims, <laughs> folks. Let's go. Those are those are honestly my favorite. You actually can I can actually have dinner with my family, hang out. You know, <laughs> it's not exactly. like especially, normal especially if it's. You know, the worst is, you know, in these, if it's a losing night and these cards end at 1 a.m., it's just like, oh, I go to bed just pissed off. It's like, at least if I lose money this weekend, I can actually, you know, <laughs> go around, maybe a couple glasses of wine, sit down, hang out with my wife, and then go to bed not thinking about it as much. Yep. Um, yeah. It's a cool card, though, honestly. Like, I, I don't know that it's the best card for betting ever. There's a couple spots I like, but um, it's exciting. I mean, the co-main and the main are great. Volley, I'm sure, is great. And then, obviously, there's a couple – squash matches that seem to have been made explicitly to make the British fighters look good. So I'm excited to get into it though. Yeah, exactly. I, I'm. I love that you brought up the time slot as well, though, because there's nothing that gets me more excited for a card when we, you know, there's like three or four hours from the moment that you wake up to the time the card starts, and I fucking absolutely. Love you know, that. you know, what was one of my most fun like experiences of the card ever was that like during the pandemic that fight island card at 9 a.m that they ran on like a wednesday dude oh, yeah. it's so nice man like like the people like don't get me wrong i'm more than happy to watch ufc at 7 p.m 8 p.m every week but like in an ideal world i would much prefer to watch it in the afternoon than i would at night you know no, I absolutely agree. And even the Wednesday card, like you brought up, that was fucking phenomenal as well. Yeah. I really enjoyed that as well. Uh, especially, I'm sure that a lot of people were working from home. So they probably had like a second screen set up where they're doing That's like their did. actual work and then they got the fights on in the working. side as well. <laughs> exactly, working as well. Uh, I miss those like super early cards, like uh, even uh, several years ago. Remember when they used to do like the Singapore and Shanghai cards at like 8 a.m. Eastern time yeah. or 6 a.m.? Yeah, I fucking love those. I was all on board with all that stuff. But uh, at 1 p.m., Eastern, we'll still take that. I don't mind that. Prime time for the London folks. Uh, and I can't wait to hear the ruckus crowd as well because whenever we have shows over there, they're usually very much into it. Not to mention they got a ton of hometown guys to cheer for. So I'm sure it'll be loud as hell in there. All right. Let's get this show on the road, though, because we got 12 fights to go through. We did lose one yesterday between Vince Morales and Nathaniel Wood. Word is they're trying to find a replacement for Nathaniel Wood. Seems like Davy Grant is the front runner, but that's just front runner based off of what we're seeing on social media. We don't know if they're actually talking contracts or anything like that. So Nathaniel Wood may be facing somebody this week. We just don't know who at this point in time, so we're going to have to skip that. So starting off the card, you want to talk about hype? You want to talk about prospects? 
We'll kick it right off the bat here with Mohamed Makayev making his UFC debut, going up against Cody Durden. In terms of odds, we got minus 380 on Makayev and plus 290 the return on Cody Durden. Uh, Makayev, we've been hearing about this kid for a long time. Uh, the guy has a 23-0 amateur record, all within the span of... I believe five years, just under five years, maybe four and a half years. And then since then, he's been able to put together five wins or go five and zero as a pro MMA fighter. He had one no contest, which was a, a low blow groin shot, uh, two and a half minutes into the first round. So not much we can really take from that fight other than he likes to kick. You know, that, that fight, he pretty much only threw kicks. One of them eventually landed uh, to the nuts there of his opponent. And then obviously that ended the fight. But uh, when he is at his best, it seems like he can get his grappling going. I'd say he has better jujitsu than he has wrestling, which is why he's always able to kind of have these dominant positions, find these dominant positions, or even be ahead of his opponent in the scrambles, uh, which is, I think, is going to be the kind of the, the difference maker here against Cody Durden. Durden, on paper, may be the better wrestler here, so I'm interested to see how Mukayev does dealing with a guy with a wrestling level of Cody Durden. But I, like I said, once this fight hits the mat, I think the BJJ of Mokayev is going to shine a little bit more than uh, Durden and his wrestling. The striking of Mokayev still seems like it needs a little bit of work. Seems like it's mainly a kicking game at this point in time. He shows good things with the striking, but we just haven't seen him rely on it heavily to go out there and get the win. More often than not, it's grappling base. Uh, there are a couple red flag fights for him. Obviously, the Hussein or Abdul Hussein fight, a very back and forth fight. Seemed like he was starting to drown a little bit, although he did did dig deep in that third round, uh, always getting the, the pretty much the better of the transitions, allowing him to get the decision victory there the Blaine O'Driscoll fight a little bit of a red flag as well in terms of how uh difficult it seems for him to deal with pressure but are we really expecting that type of pressure from Cody Durden this time around maybe from a wrestling perspective sure but like having to deal with wrestling and striking I think will possibly be the downfall of Makayev especially from an aggressive fighter so uh, I, I do think that this is a good fight for him to get that dub get his feet wet inside the UFC but uh, Cody Dern's not going to go away easily, and I don't think that this minus 380 line is uh justified in terms of how close this fight will actually be. I still think Mokayev will win, but I think it's going to be very close. I think it's going to be competitive throughout, which is why I like uh the overs here. Uh, kind of surprised that it's actually a plus money. Uh, fight goes to decision is plus 120 as well. I like that spot. I'm expecting back and forth grappling from both guys here with Mokayev eventually getting his hand raised by decision. So, uh, like I said, fight goes to decision plus. 120 like that and dirt into or sorry uh Mukayev to win by decision at plus 225 i like that as well how do you feel about this one brother uh yeah you know <clears throat> to a lot of what you said i, I don't know you know Mukayev's obviously hyped you know obviously he's a dagestani guy you know 23 pro or amateur fights as you mentioned but you know I guess going into tape, I was kind of expecting something a little better. You know, the guy is being talked about as, you know, this right. virtuoso <laughs> yeah. who was like the next, like Peter Jan or whatever, like the next, like great champion, you know? Yeah, yeah. And I, I, I honestly just don't really see it. Now, I will say, look, he's a very good athlete, you know, um, yeah. but his game, like if you showed me uh, a guy named Liam Neary from Scotland or Ireland and you're like, Here's this 21-year-old kid who's undefeated. I'd be like, oh, okay. Um, he looks decent. He probably could be in the UFC in four or five years, maybe. Um, obviously, his name is Muhammad Mokayev, and he's hyped up. So everybody's talking about him being ready, being ready to contend. 
I don't really think that's the case. Look, I think he's pretty raw. You know, obviously there's some, he's fast. He's a good athlete. He's a decent wrestler. He's got a good back take. You know, I think his striking fundamentals are okay. They're a little shoddy defensively, I, I think. Uh, kind of stuff that I expect him to probably clean up long-term, to be honest. But I, I don't think he's really ready for the UFC, if I'm being completely honest. Um, in terms of this matchup, you know, it's weird. Because, like, Cody Durden is okay, right? You know, I, I think Durden's the kind of guy, if you give him a guy that's at a grappling disadvantage, he can just mop the floor with. And even in the striking, you know, I don't, like, rate his striking very highly but he tends to be very aggressive, you know. Uh, I certainly think in the grappling, as long as Durden's fresh, he can probably compete there. I, I really don't think, like, Mokayev's, like, wrestling is on that, like, even close to that kind of, like, top-level Dagestani tier. Like, I think it's closer to, like, average to above average in the UFC. But, like, I, I certainly don't think while they're fresh, he, he's going to be able to, you know, just dominate Durden in the grappling. I, I just don't really see that happening. And, you know, as you mentioned, we've seen issues in dealing with pressure. I kind of think... Durden early in this fight, we know he's going to go forward and we know he's going to let his hands go. I actually think there's some room for Durden to have success early. You know, the real problem is, you know, as I think everybody knows and every analysis this week is going to say, you know, Cody Durden just doesn't really have a reliable gas tank. You know, he just tends to go too hard. Um, now, maybe he learns. He's young enough. He can make adjustments. He can maybe fix some issues with his cardio or fix his pacing. But I, I just, it's hard. The thing is, like, I would have interest in Durden. I just kind of feel like Either Durden's going to push a pace and pressure him and probably gas out, or Mokayev's going to try to push a grappling pace and Durden may still gas out. So it's really hard for me to trust him down the stretch. Uh, but I think he can have success while he's fresh. So it's like, look, if the money line pushed out to like plus 350, plus 400, I'd probably take a stab. Something I think is interesting, though, I kind of like to go to the distance here a decent bit. You know, I, I, I hesitate to take a side with it just because I do think Durden can have success early. And it's like, well, if he wins the first round in a decent clip, you know, we saw what happened in the um, the Aori fight, his last fight. You know, he managed to kind of just suck out around, you know, laying him at the end of that fight. Uh, and so I don't really want to take a side, but like, I think Durden's probably a much better submission grappler than just about everybody Mokayev's faced. And so I don't really think, I know Durden got subbed by Jimmy Flick, but that was such, I, I'm pretty sure we're not getting a flying triangle from Mokayev here, <laughs> you know? And, and I kind of think the tired Durden can probably hang on, you know? We saw him dead tired with Chris Gutierrez, who's a fairly prolific finisher, and he managed to, you know, make it through that fight. So, I mean, it's a 125-pound fight. Only, like, 35% of these end inside the distance, maybe even less than that. Um, I don't think Mokayev's at all likely to put him out standing, or Durden really likely to put him out. So, like, I kind of think goes the distance should be lined as, like, a decent favorite price here, and it's dead rate and a dog price. So I like that spot a lot here. Yeah, uh, I, I honestly kind of overlooked the fight goes to the decision. I had the over two and a half in my best bets and props article, but then seeing it at plus money, I was just like, "Ooh, this is th this might be interesting" because <laughs> I expected to be a back and forth fight the way that you're saying. So, uh, yeah, let, let's see how that one goes down. Very excited to see how the uh, the UFC career of Mohamed Makayev starts to pan out here. All right. Let's move on to the next fight here. We got Elise Reed going up against Corey McKenna. In terms of odds, we got minus 265 on McKenna and plus 215 on Elise Reed. I was actually seeing on Pinnacle as well earlier today. McKenna sitting at minus 285 and the return on uh, on Elise Reed was around plus 235. It's it's a wide line, man. I, I, in my opinion, you know, Corey McKenna, I think she's being a little bit overrated in this spot, right? Especially her wrestling, which, you know, that's kind of her go-to in most of her fights. But I feel as though 
it is more often not overrated. Now, if you just stack them up side by side and you see Elise Reed, how many times she's been getting taken down uh, and, and kind of dominated. Well, not dominated. I think she's only been dominated by Sajara Eubanks. But if you look at her last uh, several fights where she has gotten takedowns or gotten taken down, she does a good job in terms of kind of nullifying the amount of damage her opponent does, which is why she's getting the decisions in the fights like the Jasmine da- Jazz Vicious fight or even the uh, Jillian DeCourcy fight where these opponents get the takedowns, but she does a good job in terms of kind of stifling their uh, transitions and even getting back to her feet and then dishing out damage on the feet. She's a solid striker, Taekwondo background, karate background. You kind of see it in her stance. And I kind of think that's where Corey McKenna lacks is her striking. She has decent boxing, but I still think that she's going to get touched up from distance here as uh, McKenna will struggle to kind of close that distance. But it's either to close a distance to, well, there's only one reason she's going to close a distance and more often than not, it's to grapple is to try to get the yeah. takedown and drag this fight to the ground. I'm sure McKenna will land a couple takedowns. I'm just not completely sold on her ability to hold that position. You saw that fight against that Italian chick on the uh, cage warriors uh, scene where she landed a couple takedowns in that fight, but had no success keeping that fight on the ground. And that other chick was able to win the fight just off of her striking damage alone. I could see this fight playing out similar to that, right? I think that we could see Elise Reed possibly find her way back to her feet and, and, you know, dish the damage with the striking and land some good shots. She has a great kicking game. She manages her distance decently well for somebody that has as bad takedown defense as she does. But you got to believe that she's improving that just as McKenna is improving her game as well. So for me, it's more so is McKenna improving her top control enough? And is it going to showcase it here? Because if it doesn't, Reed will be able to get back to her feet and Reed will get back to her striking, which I think is where she has the advantage. So uh, a couple ways I'd look I'd look to play this fight. Um, McKenna via decision, if her top control is enough, I think it'll be enough to her, for her to just uh, grind it out over 15 minutes, which is uh, minus 120 right now. But my, my, my tinfoil hat, you know, prop here is uh, Elise Reed via KO at plus 1100. If she gets off on the feet, you know, um, she can have tremendous success. And she stopped a couple of women just based off of volume and output and kind of overwhelming them on the feet with her strikes. Uh, one thing that was hilarious about her first ever fight in Bellator was I forgot who it was. I think it was Josh Thompson or big John McCarthy who was saying, oh, you know, at least we's landing a lot of these big shots, but they don't seem to have the most pop in them. And literally, as he says that, she lands a beautiful body kick that visibly hurts Jessica uh Biggerman, I think her name was, whatever her name was. But uh, it was hilarious, just a contradiction of like immediately of, of that happening. She does kick with some uh, ill intentions. She doesn't have like crazy one punch knockout power or anything, but she's able to put together these accumulative strikes that I think could uh, maybe wear on McKenna, especially if she's not having success with the grappling. If she's not having success with the takedowns, I think she could possibly get overwhelmed at a certain spot here. So, not saying she's going to knock her out cold, but I think uh, like a ground, like a, uh, again, Again, a standing TKO is absolutely possible here for Elise Reed at plus 1,100. I'd have to take a little bit of a sprinkle. Official pick is Corey McKenna, though. Again, she has the hometown advantage, all that type of stuff. Uh, the takedowns, if she is able to keep them, she will more than likely be able to grind this fight out. So uh, best prop would probably be McKenna via decision. Uh, but my tinfoil hat conspiracy theory here is uh, Reed via KO at plus 1,100. How do you feel about this one? Interesting. Um, you know, I, I'm not, I shouldn't say I'm passionate about it. I think Corey McKenna is kind of a bit of an unknown still. You know, she's been off yeah. for about a year and a half. She's only 22 years old. You know, she's been training a team alpha male. So, I mean, I think it's pretty reasonable to expect we'll get some improvements for her. I, I guess my big issue with Corey McKenna, though, 
just in general is she's very short and she's got a very short reach and she doesn't seem to be the most athletic, you know, fighter in the world. Uh, but, you know, I think she's an okay wrestler and I think she's got a pretty good control game. Whereas on the other side, I actually think Reed's probably the better athlete here, but I, I don't think Reed is particularly skilled. You know, she has, look, if they stay standing, Reed probably has the tools to outpoint her. It'll probably be competitive and she can probably, you know, win an output-based fight on the feet. Um, I, I guess just my big issue is I, I think Reed's very easy to take down. And thus far, I haven't really seen a lot to show me that she has, you know, much resistance to provide on the mat, you know? And so it's like, can Reed get up? Maybe. And I, I get it. You know, Corey McKenna certainly not to jar Eubanks. It's just like watching that, how easily Eubanks was able to pass and seeing how okay McKenna has been in top position with much better grapplers and at least Reed, it just makes me think if McKenna gets her down, she's probably going to hold her there and, pa and pass and, you know, kind of do what she wants. Um, but I, I don't, I don't really have a ton of interest in playing her up at minus 230 though. There's too many questions around McKenna. The athletic disadvantage kind of scares me and she's too short. Um, but I actually kind of think, you know, if, if McKenna's going to pay this price off and be minus 230, it likely means she's on top a lot of this fight. And with that being the case, I, I kind of think McKenna ITD plus 300 is not a bad look. You know, we know Reed's a girl who's going to give up position. And so presumably if McKenna actually is minus 230, she's going to get the dominant positions here. So I don't mind a pop there. I think McKenna plus 300 is decent to finish. Uh, shout out to our guy, AG saying i can't make a good read against <laughs> this fucking guy i'm sure he's here all week folks make sure you guys check him out uh yeah no i i get that i'll, I'll also say this about reed uh in the sajara eubanks fight it seems as soon as the fight started she goes oh i'm fucked i'm fucked <laughs> she, she doesn't even like move forward as soon as they start the fight she kind of just waits for your sajara to come to her and then sajara just takes him down almost yeah immediately. that was Hopefully. that was uh Go ahead. The easiest minus two fifty I've ever bet in yeah. my life. <laughs> but still, I, I'm hoping that we see more confidence from her this time around, rather than thinking, "Oh fuck, Sajara's coming. She's more than likely going to take me down." But we'll see how that goes. All right, let's move on to the next fight. Here we got Jack Shore going up against Timur Valiev. In terms of odds, we currently have minus uh, one fifteen on Valiev and minus one hundred five on Jack Shore. Crazy line movement on this fight throughout fight week. Yeah, I believe uh, Jack Shore opened up around plus one fifty, plus one sixty. A ton of money coming in making him uh i wouldn't even be surprised if he's actually favorite by the time uh this fight goes off considering how much love i'm seeing out there for him uh he's one of my favorite prospects right 15 and 0 uh very solid game likes to go for takedowns likes to drag this fight to the mat and just dominate his opponents from there uh he hasn't been able to get a finish in his last couple fights here but more often than not we see him go down there and get the finish against his opponents but we both know this as level of competition starts to rise yeah. it gets hard and harder to finish some of these guys so i'd be surprised if he finishes value of his striking game is still coming along pretty well i think you know it's improving it's definitely not at the level of his grappling game but i think that we're going to continue to see progress from it as he you know gains more confidence inside the ufc and starts adding more names to his record as well. Valiev will easily be the toughest test to this point in time. We know Valiev's uh, kind of his his uh, strength more often than not is his unorthodox striking style. Likes to throw a lot of spinning stuff. Likes to throw some flashy stuff. He usually controls his opponents a lot just in the striking alone, right? He does a very good job in terms of maintaining distance. And then he's shown that he can rely on his grappling if he needs it, right? In the Martin Day fight, he lands five takedowns. I think he got almost 11 minutes of control time in that fight as well. But 
that was, I think, more so of a statement to be like, hey, you know, I know I got knocked out in my last fight against Trevin Jones. Let me just play this as safe as possible, not risk getting knocked out or anything like that. Let me get a W, and then I'll go back to being myself, which she was in the Hani Barcelos fight where he was able to knock down Barcelos a couple times there. Uh, I think he dropped the second round, but outside of that, he looked pretty good. Uh, it could also be due to Hani Barcelos not throwing as much, but you also have to factor in that Valiev does a really good job in terms of moving, staying out of range from his opponents making it harder for them to get their own offense off but i do think jack shore is one of the best in terms of kind of corralling his opponents in certain situations and just dragging them to the mat and i think it's just a matter of time before he gets his hands on value and starts to drag him down or even kind of has some success in that clinch position up against the cage he's big he's strong for this weight class as well and i think it's going to show here against value uh, i'd be like i said I, i'd be surprised if he gets the finish I'd be surprised if both guys get the finish actually here because Valiev, you know, a uh, decent striker, uh, but I think that we've seen great durability from Jack Shore in many fights in the past, and I'd be surprised if Valiev is going to be the first person to knock him out, which is kind of why, you know, the fight goes to the decision. I'm looking at it now, actually. It's minus 225, a little bit chalky. For two guys that are, you know, more often not going out there and finishing their opponents, I think that's a little bit too juiced, but uh, I... I I believe in the durability of both guys here, thinking that they'll be able to make it through the full 15 minutes. I will lean with the Jack Shore side of things. I do think he'll be able to get the takedowns and control time, and I think that'll be more than enough for him to get the judges nod. So uh, Jack Shore by decision, plus 165. Uh, I'm seeing plus 200s at certain spots. Sign me up for that. And then on the flip side, I'd say you could do the same thing for value of by decision around plus 150, plus 165 as well. So I'm going Shore. I feel like you're going to have a different take on this one. Please do let us know. Yeah, uh, I like Valley up here, to be honest. To be, you know, it's funny. I initially saw the line drop, uh, and I hadn't looked that closely at it. I was like, minus 150. In my head, I was like, that's probably where it should be for Valley of. And then obviously, it's come in quite a bit. So I taped it pretty aggressively the other night. Honestly, like, I like Jack Shore like, generally, you know, <clears throat> because look, you want a guy that's going to come out there and maximize his chance to win fights. And, you know, Shore's going to put out output on the feet. He's going to attempt a lot of takedowns. And, you know, those are just two things that are going to help you win rounds. Obviously, he's a dangerous grappler. But, like, you look at the guys that Shore's been fighting, you know, both regionally and now in the UFC. It's like Aaron Phillips, Nolan Hernandez, Ludovic Shalinian. The only, like, great win for him is and that's not even great like good decent win is hunter azure and that fight was pretty concerning to me in a lot of respects you know he kind of struggled to control azure in that fight he got reversed a few times you know he lost the striking in that fight uh that went to a split decision and you know azure is a guy that we've seen held on the fence by brad katona we've seen him have his back taken a couple times in the ufc and the fact that sure until azure gassed out really kind of struggled to get to dominant positions really just made me kind of think he was probably hitting an athleticism wall. Uh, and now he fights Timur Valiev, who I think is better than Hunter Azure just about everything. First of all, we're going to be back in a big cage, which seems kind of important. Uh, and unlike Azure and most of the other guys short fought, um, Valiev actually uses the cage quite well. You know, his movement's quite good. He fights on the back foot very, very well. Uh, but then in the grappling, it's just like, look, Valiev's got very, very good takedown defense. When he's gotten taken down in the past, he historically hasn't accepted bottom position much. You know, he does a pretty good job of creating space and working up. And I just kind of think, you know, if Azure was able to, you know, easily work up and even get to, you know, top position at times, I kind of expect Valiev to outperform Azure fairly easily in the grappling. I think he's a better wrestler than Azure is. I think he's a better defensive grappler than Azure is. Um, and as I mentioned, I think he's a much better striker. You know, I think he's got a pretty substantial striking advantage here. 
I actually think he can have some grappling success himself in this spot. Um, so I, I like Volley up here. I think, you know, 60% or so is about right. You know, that minus 150 mark. And I, and I think in terms of the fight, like if you're going to play a prop, you know, I'd be surprised if Valia finished him. You know, I think Azure's a bigger hitter than he is, and he didn't really hurt Shore that much. Um, so, yeah, I, I like Valia by decision here. I think he can get it up to the plus 165 in spots. But, yeah, Valia, Valia by decision. That's how I'm looking to play this. I like it. I like that take. Again, there's there's a lot of love on Jack Shore this weekend, and that's obviously represented by the crazy line movement that we're seeing here. Not a lot of people I'm hearing and seeing on the value of side, so I'm uh, glad that we got that perspective as well. All right, let's move on to the next fight here. Nikita Krilov going up against Paul Craig. Uh, in terms of odds, we got minus 200 on Krilov, plus 170 the return on Paul Craig. Uh, interesting fight here, right? Most often, uh, these guys don't like going to the decision which uh, currently sits at minus 200 right now. Fight doesn't go to decision. Uh, before the three-fight decision streak that Nikita Krilov is on, uh, he had 32 fights that did not go the distance, which is a crazy stat to consider, especially with that volume of fights. On the flip side for Paul Craig, the only time he's been to a decision was against Shogun Hua the first time when they went to a draw, but uh, he put a stamp on that in the rematch where he made my guy Shogun tap to strikes. And that was probably the saddest moment in MMA history for me to see my guy Shogun who would go out like that against a guy like the Bear Jew. But uh, interesting fight here, right? Pretty easy to break down in terms of Krilov. If he's smart, he's not going to go for takedowns, something that he's been historically doing over the last several fights. Uh, if he wants to keep this in the striking, more than likely he's the better striker, has more power in the striking as well. We're on the flip side for Paul Craig. Uh, he doesn't mind striking. But like his technical striking leads some work. It's more so the aggressiveness that allows him to be successful in those striking exchanges at times. But the end goal is clear here. He wants to get the fight to the ground. He wants to use his jujitsu. And I said this in my own breakdown for the MMA logcast I dropped the other day. Uh, you don't see, you know, finishes from bottom as often in men's MMA, with the exception of Paul Craig. Paul Craig loves throwing up submissions off his back and more often than not, he gets them. He got my guy Magomed on He got uh, Gadzmarad Antigulov. He got Jamal Hill the last time around. Like, he just keeps getting these guys because he's so sneaky with his setups, with his triangle and with his armbar and all that. Um, it's women's MMA where we see the armbar from guard more often than not. Not men's MMA. But <laughs> Paul Craig is the exception to that. So I wouldn't be surprised if we see that here, right? Uh, out of the – how many losses does my guy have here? Out of the eight losses on Nikita Krilov's record, I believe four of them have been – or sorry, five of them have been via submission. That's not, you know, uh, confidence building at all if you like the Nikita <laughs> Krilov side here at all. You know, shout out to the people that got in early on Krilov. You know, I believe he was a slight plus money on the opener, maybe minus 130 for a little bit while – for a little time and now that line is just absolutely skyrocketed to minus 200 but i honestly want nothing to do with this fight because i could see the fight doesn't go to decision busting in your face as well right man that sounded disgusting as hell but you guys know what the fuck i mean <laughs> I, uh, we could see krilov <laughs> taking maybe more so of a uh, a point fighting approach uh where he kind of just stays on the outside tries to nullify the takedown attempts of paul craig by keeping him on the outside with the, you know the jab or his kicks or anything like that and then on the flip side for paul craig if he gets a takedown you know what if he's thinking let's go position over submission at this point in time just try to keep Krilov on the ground and maybe a submission will eventually find its, uh, open itself up. But if it doesn't, I'm just going to continue to control him here. And before we know it, 15 minutes have passed by. 
So that's a little bit of a concern for me, which is why I'm not the highest on the fight. It doesn't go to decision as much anymore. Um, but if we're looking at props, right, you could look at Krilov uh, via decision. That's sitting at plus 350. Uh, Paul Craig by submission, plus 450. Not too bad of a stab there, in my opinion, because of, you know, Paul Craig's kind of uh, MO whenever he goes out there and fights. And obviously the amount of losses that Krilov has had via submission. Uh, but yeah, I don't feel too good about this fight from any perspective. Money line props or anything. I just want to sit back and watch this car crash, man. I think that's where it's going to be, whether it's over 15 <laughs> minutes or a quick car crash that ends in uh, less than a round. We'll, we'll see how it goes down. Uh, how do you feel about this one? Yeah, so fun little story. You know, like obviously growing up, you know, you know, my dad wasn't an MMA guy. He's a big baseball guy. So him and I chat baseball all the time. You know, we bond over baseball. And, you know, I have a two-year-old son, and I'm hoping as he grows up, you know, him and I will bond over MMA. You know, my dad used to share with me all the history of baseball, and I'd Wikipedia stuff and look it up. It's going to be interesting in 10 years having to explain to my son that Paul Craig, the guy who subbed Jamal Hill and Magomed Ankalaev, wasn't that good. <laughs> tried, you know, uh, trust me. Trust me, <laughs> he wasn't that good. Um, it's just so, I mean, so, Paul Craig has had some career, man. <laughs> like this, it is, this is like the upper 1% of outcomes you could have possibly had, like subbing and Kaliyah and Hill. Um, good but, you know, it, it's interesting because I agree with pretty much everything you said. You know, on, you know, on paper, Krilov has the tools to be minus 400 here right you know yeah. he should be the better grappler really he should be definitely the better striker um but like you know i wanted to bet krilov to be honest and then i'm like taping it and it's like the guy gets himself in so many messy scrambles that like you know paul craig is like the joker in batman he's an agent of chaos man and krilov is happy to accept the chaos and i don't really want to have money at juice on nikita krilov if he's in there just obliging Craig and like messy grappling exchanges, you know? Um, but with that said, you know, it's interesting. You touched on, you know, the Krilovs had 31 fight or I mean, his first like 31 or 32 fights all didn't go the distance. It's honestly kind of hard to figure out how, like he doesn't really have what I'd really classify as like a hard ITD fighting style. You know, he's not like a guy who's going to bite the mouthpiece and go swing in the pocket with you. That's not really his MO. He's really more of a, on the feet, almost like an outside karate guy, really. Um, obviously, he will force grappling and stuff. And I think, you know, obviously, that's probably why he's got so many finishes. You know, he'll force guys to either get submitted or he'll get submitted. But, you know, in this matchup, I, I honestly think the best way to look at it is I like the goes the distance here. I, I kind of like the Krilov by decision because it Craig's a Craig's a really difficult guy to sub, man. Like, he's only been – actually, I don't think he's been subbed – no, he's been subbed one time in his career – and it was a third-round Kimura by Jimmy Crute. But, like, Craig does a pretty good job with guard retention. He tends to just be constantly attacking off him. I don't really think Krilov is likely to really try to aggressively pass if he is on the ground here, if he's smart at least. And on the feet, you know, like I said, I think Krilov just probably plays an outside game and outpoints him there pretty easily. Uh, so, yeah, it's like, yeah, I mean, it could finish. Craig could catch a sub or maybe he gets head kicked or – you know, Krilov gets a dominant position at some point. But I kind of just think, you know, while they're standing, you know, Krilov's going to dictate where this fight takes place, whether it's on the mat or on the feet. Um, and on the feet, I, I just don't think it's a super high percentage to finish. And even on the mat, I sort of think more of the finishing upsides on the Craig side of things on the mat. So, 
And I don't think it's super likely he subs Kirloff. So I, I like goes the distance at dog money. Like I'd probably have that like 55% to be honest. And I, and in terms of like, you know, personal props, like I think Kirloff by decision, especially if you have one of those books plus 300, I think that's pretty good. Yeah, I, again, I think a lot of people are going to kind of be questioning your approach on that one, considering the history of these guys. Yeah, and yeah. I haven't seen the judges' scorecards, but I see it, man. Styles obviously makes fights, and this could absolutely be those ones where Krilov just doesn't want to overextend too much and, and fear getting taken down. Because, again, maybe he has some flashbacks to the five submission losses he has on his record. Like, oh, God, this motherfucker's on top of me. I might just give up a choke or some shit. But, yeah, uh, looking forward to seeing how this one plays out. Hopefully it's a fun fight, at least from an entertainment perspective. All right. Let's get this fight or get this card moving along here. Next up, we got Shamil Abdurahimov going up against Sergey Pavlovich. In terms of odds, we got minus 310 on Pavlovich, plus 245 the return on Shamil Abdurahimov. Now, both these guys have been out of the cage for a long time. Uh, I believe uh, end of 2019 was pretty much the last time we saw both of these guys. Uh, and now I'm looking forward to seeing how, uh, well, more than likely how Shamil comes back looking because he's cracking 40 years old at this point in time. But I remember not too long ago where this guy used to be heavy chalk whenever you used to go bet him. And now all of a sudden he's plus 245 against a relatively unproven heavyweight prospect here in Sergey Pavlovich. Now Pavlovich obviously fell flat in his UFC debut against uh, Alistair Overeem where he got pounded to shit on the ground by Overeem. Uh, I believe that was first uh, the first fight for Overeem uh, training with the uh, Curtis Blades who had recently done the same thing to him the uh, two fights ago uh but uh since then sergey pavlovich has come back and knocked out marcelo gome in a minute and then he knocked out uh maurice green in two minutes not too much we can really take away from those fights because if abdurahima's chin holds up here which obviously it has not over the last two fights but can you blame him against curtis blades and uh chris Dawkins, who has that crazy hand speed can we say that sergey pavlovich has the same thing here you're pretty much banking on him to go out there and knock out Shamil Abdurakimov in round one, because if he doesn't, Shamil could make this thing sticky, man. It wasn't too long ago that he's beating Andre Arlovsky over 15 minutes, something that Arlovsky does very well in terms of putting out uh, uh, output, putting out, uh, you know, good scoring uh, for the judges, which is why Arlovsky, more often than not, is able to get the judges' scorecards uh, more, uh, at this point in his career. But Shamil did a really good job in terms of tying him up against the cage, landing some good strikes of his own, landing takedowns when he needed as well. Uh, and he could do that here against Sergey Pavlovich too, right? I, I, outside of those bit quick knockouts, uh, there's not much that Sergey Pavlovich brings to the table. With that said, like I'm just not willing to go out there and shell out money to back a guy in Shamil Abdurahimov who could be absolutely falling off a cliff at this point in time. We know heavyweights, though. You can go later into your 40s and still have some success, or at least into your early to mid-40s and still have success. But this Sergey Pavlovich guy, it seems like, uh, if he has really found this confidence in his striking, because early in his career, it didn't really seem like that. But now he's really throwing with some intention, throwing with some speed. And if he's able to catch Abdurakimov, I think he could put his lights out. But I I'm just not counting on it. I'm really not counting on it, especially at this money line price tag. So that's why we bet props. Sergey Pavlovich, even by KO, is sitting at minus 200, which is crazy to Fuck me. We don't that. see that often. That is absolutely crazy that that line is uh, there. Uh, Pavlovich inside the distance, minus 225. But if you truly think Pavlovich gets it done at a pretty high clip early, taking the under one and a half is probably the easiest or the best way to go here, which is currently sitting at minus 150. Because if it starts to creep over that one round mark, then I think things start to get a bit, a little bit shaky for Pavlovich because that means that Abdurahimov is more than likely having some success too. Abdurahimov by decision is plus 600. That is an insane line considering I think that he has the more 
uh, tools to win a fight via decision in this spot than what Pavlovich brings. So two ways to go about it, in my opinion. You either take the one and a half and bank on Pavlovich getting that early knockout, or you can hedge off a little bit with uh, Abdurahimov to win by decision at plus 600, which I think is a absurd number considering he probably has the better tools to win this five-year decision. Do you agree with that? And then ultimately, who do you think wins this fight? Yeah, I, I, I mean... Honestly, like without the Abdurahimov like knockout against Dawkins a couple months ago, like I wouldn't be, I'd probably be betting in here. Like I, I, I pretty much completely agree with your take on Pavlovich. I don't really think Pavlovich, as an MMA fighter, really brings a whole lot to the table. He's just a very big hitter, and he's kind of athletic. You know, uh, the problem for me is it's just like Shamil's forty-one years old. You know, he didn't fight for two years before that. Got viciously knocked out by Dawkins. Now he's turning around six months later and. First of all, I think it's kind of weird that, you know, he took all that time off at his age, then gets knocked out, and now turning around, like, he's just trying to fight out his contract and get his paychecks. Like, I, I don't really know. Um, what I will say is, though, I actually thought Pavlovich – or not Pavlovich, Abdurakimov looked up pretty good against Dawkins before he got hurt bad at the end of round one. You know, he, he was winning most of the striking exchanges earlier in that fight, and I actually think Dawkins – I mean, he's got faster hands than Pavlovich for sure. You know, he—I I actually think Dawkins is probably a better fighter than Pavlovich is. Um, so, it, like, like I, I kind of think if you're betting the fight on a money line perspective, you obviously have to bet Abdurakhimov here. Laying minus three hundred on Pavlovich is crazy talk. And kind of like you said, like even looking at Pavlovich's props here, because like I'll—I'll I'll be honest, like I, I really do think it's the kind of I, that Abdurakhimov is going to get knocked out. I really don't like these turning around like this at this age to fight a guy that moves like Pavlovich and that hits like Pavlovich does. But like Pavlovich KO is like minus two or is minus 200. Pavlovich round one is even money. Like I'm not <laughs> betting a round one at even money. Are you kidding me? Like if, if you're betting round ones at even money, you're fucking donating. Like that is, that is, that is, what, you, that is what you're doing. Um, so it's just like, I, I look at this stuff like, well, what, you know, my favorite prop for the fight is honestly probably a Durakimov by decision, like plus 600. But if he wins, like if he gets out of the first seven minutes, he's probably going to win the fight and it's probably going to be by decision, you know? It's just a question of how often does Pavlovich put his lights out. But like you you nailed it. Like, like Durakimov's the better fighter. There was once upon a time, this was a guy that was always chalk. And honestly, historically speaking, he's a guy who's always been known as being very durable for heavyweight too, right? So it's like, yeah, I, I'm probably not going to bet him on the money line, but honestly, plus 600 to win a decision here, that's kind of crazy. I kind of like that. Yeah, I do like that approach here as well. I, and I I did miss uh, misspeak there earlier in terms of uh, the last time we saw Abdurahimov inside the cage. He last fought uh, in uh, September of 2021 where he got knocked out by Dawkins. But before that was the end of 2019 because he had like four or five fights fall out between 2019 and the time that he stepped in against Dawkins. So I apologize for that. But yeah, uh, it's just a matter of will Shamil's chin hold up? And if it does... His decision line is absolutely crazy here. I might just take a degenerate sprinkle on it because yeah. plus six hundred is just crazy considering he's just the play better. Play twenty bucks on it. Take yeah, the money exactly. back for dinner after it hits. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> there you go. There you go. 
All right, let's keep this thing moving along. I believe it is the prelim headliner now. A grapples, grappler's delight between Mike Grundy and Makwan Americani. In terms of odds, we currently have minus 190 on Grundy and plus 160 the return on Makwan Americani. Now, uh, this line actually opened up as a pick got immediate steam on Mike Grundy, bringing him down to minus 135. But over the last couple of days, we've been getting nothing but Mike Grundy love on the betting line. And I got to say, I, I kind of understand it. It might be getting a little bit crazy at this point in time, getting up to that minus 200 range. But I still do think he should be the one that's favored. Maybe minus 130 was closer to a more accurate betting line here. Because, man, Maquan, three-fight losing streak, you know, it, it just does not look the greatest. He had a great first round against Lerone Murphy, though. Like, that was very impressive where he was able to ground him and just hold him. But then it seemed like he was just a little bit too desperate for that takedown in round two. And he got caught by a beautiful knee by Lerone Murphy after he faked a jab. And then he uh, brought up the knee knowing that Maquan was going to kind of uh, duck under that jab, go for a takedown, and he paid the price for it. But that's when Maquan is best, right? When he's able to drag fights to the ground, he has a crazy Anaconda series, uh, does a very good job in terms of his chokes, uh, looks for the finish more often than not. But when he's not able to get the finish and he's required to go the full 15 minutes, his gas tank just does not look the greatest. He doesn't really manage his gas tank the best. The same could kind of be said about Mike Grundy, but you know, the, the moves are evil at fight. When you have a choke that tight, you think more often than not you're putting your opponent out. But moves are evil is just built differently, and he was able to survive that early onslaught from Mike Grundy. Even with Mike looking like he was a little bit gassed in the, after that first round, he still landed, I believe, three or four takedowns of moves are evil in rounds two and round three. And then from there, uh, um, you know, obviously he was just not able to do enough and get enough control time, which is where Movzar was able to pull away in terms of the striking and landing the more damaging blows on the feet. The the Lando Venata fight, the guy shot 20 takedowns. That is insane in terms of the amount of takedowns you're able to shoot. Uh, he only landed three of them, uh, but Lando Venata, you know, underrated wrestler, did a good job in terms of keeping that fight on the feet. And then on the feet, you know, he was a much better striker, much more versatile, much more diverse, and had way more output than what Mike Grundy was doing that night. Now, if Grundy can secure takedowns on Maquan and Mirakani, I'd be surprised if he actually goes for takedowns early in this fight. I think if he tried to control it with his power striking style on the feet, he could wear on uh, Maquan and Mirakani and then maybe go to the grappling later on in this fight. But I feel like the, their grappling is going to cancel each other out early here. And then the longer that this fight goes, I'm going to be leaning on Mike Grundy a little bit more in terms of just, uh, like I said, controlling the fight with his power punching. And I think he could eventually actually find that chin of Makwan Amirkani and put him out. Grundy hits pretty fucking hard, as we've seen in the past. And I think that he could absolutely do that here against Amirkani. Crazy to me that Grundy KO is at plus 750 because I think that's very live in this spot. And uh, I'd even sprinkle the round three a little bit here, which is currently sitting around plus 1400. So Grundy's the pick. Grundy by KO plus 750. Take my money and uh, sprinkle that round three as well. How do you feel about this one? Yeah, I mean, I'm more or less in the same in the same boat as you hear. You know, it's funny. Because, like, there's a part of me that when this line came out, I was like, man, Maquan as a dog, you know, the guy's fought, like, much better. Well, he shouldn't say he's fought better competition, but he's had success against better competition than Mike Grundy has. Like, what has Mike Grundy really done in the UFC, you know? He knocked out Nad Naramani, but, like, he's not really a power power puncher, you know? It's not really historically been the way he gets guys out of there. Um, but at the same time, like, you just nailed it. You know, I did, dug a little deeper, and it's like, Grundy attempted 20 takedowns against Lando Venata. It's like, there, 
Maquan Amir Khani would have a heart attack if he attempted 20 takedowns in a fight, <laughs> you know? Like, it, it's – and granted, Grundy doesn't have great cardio either, but mm. the fact that he's got, like, that much – I guess the best way to put it – and I'm not normally a narrative guy like this. I just think Grundy's got more fight in him than Amir Khani does, to be honest. Like, you know – I, I know what you mean by that. Like, like yeah. that, that that seems like a noobish take. Like, I know what you mean. Like, oh, he has he has more fight in his eyes or some shit like that. Like, I he just he's the more mentally prepared guy at this point in time. But no, I, I completely agree with you. For like this when point. things go south for Macron Americani, he just panics and everything goes to shit, you know? <laughs> um, like Grundy, you know, he every is like getting up from every takedown he's stuffing takedowns piecing him up and grunny doesn't care you know he just bites the mouthpiece and keeps coming forward and trying to take him down same thing in the banana fight it's like i know grundy if things get dicey is going to continue to try to work his game plan whether that strike or take mach one down whereas if mach one cannot control this fight at his pace where he wants it to be he's probably going to break because that's what he does you know uh mach one's fun you know i like him you know he's fun ridiculous personality but unfortunately the guy just does not deal with adversity very well it's just been the reality whereas grundy deals with it okay and i think skill wise they're probably on a similar level um but grundy's a bit more proactive in what he does whereas mach one tends to fade precipitously after a round so i lean grundy i think you know the line could be a tad wide but I, I just, you know, I bet Mach 1 against Lerone Murphy, and I'm just done after that. Like, <laughs> like never again, you know, I'm, I'm done. I'm done, like, visiting the Mach 1 Americani dog shelter, as they say. Um, <laughs> in terms of props, it's kind of a weird fight, right? I, I think I lean towards goes the distance here. Um, it's minus 180, and I think I lean towards Grundy decision. You know, Grundy decision right now, it's sitting there. Plus 150 is the best number on it, it looks like. Um but I don't think that's bad. And it's like Amir Khani's not a guy who we're seeing get subbed on the mat, you know, when he's been out grappled, really. Uh, and, you know, we even tried the Kamala Kirk fight. You know, he was completely gassed out at the end of that fight, but he actually was able to maintain his full guard uh, and not let Kirk really pass or do any damage towards the end of that fight. And I kind of think, because it's kind of a similar dynamic, right? Like if they go three, if they get into the second or third round, Grundy's probably going to be tired too. So I kind of think Mach 1's pretty likely to survive on bottom. So my lead would be goes a distance, um, which is a little chalky, but like I don't really think Grundy's going to get subbed either here. Like Mach 1 really only threatens with that Anaconda. He doesn't really have many other submissions to go to other than the front choke series. And yeah, I like goes a distance. I like Grundy by decision. Yeah, I do think the only finish I will see here is likely the the Grunny KO. But outside of that, yeah, I do agree that this will likely go to 50 minutes with a back and forth grappling fight with uh, Grunny starting to pull away the further that this fight goes. All right, that is a wrap on the prelims. Shout out to the 90 of you currently chilling with us on this Thursday afternoon. Make sure you guys follow my guy, John, over there at MMA Fox on Twitter. Make sure you guys check out his Club and Sub podcast as well. Link to that channel is in the description below. And if you guys haven't already, make sure you guys hit that like and subscribe on this video as well. All right, let's get to the main card and kicking things off. More hype throughout the card. We got my guy Ilya Taporia coming in at minus 590 now. The return on Jai Herbert, plus 425. Uh, personally, we talked about this a little bit before we went live. I told you to hold on to your thoughts so that we can talk about it a little bit more live on the show with the guys here. But I feel like this is one of those runover spots for Ilya Taporia. Uh, obviously, we know he had that uh, whole debacle in January where uh, he was supposed to fight Evluev. Evluev pulls out with COVID. In steps Charles Jordan. Uh, during that time, you get that Rata video from Taporia talking shit about Evluev. And lo and behold, 
Deporia has to pull out on weigh-in day because he can't make the weight down to 145 pounds. But seems like he wants to right that wrong right away, right? A month and a half later, here he is at UFC London going up, or sorry, at UFC London going up a weight class to fight Jai Herbert and uh, try to wipe that ta- that bad taste out of his mouth. Uh, I think this is a run-over spot for him where he can get Jai Herbert to the ground, and from there he should be able to do work and possibly find a, a quick finish here. <clears throat> now... Uh, I get it. Jai Herbert's huge. He's 6'1". I think uh, Tapori is like 5'6 or 5'7". In some fights, I think size advantages and all that come into play. But in this particular fight, I, I just don't think so. I don't see the takedown defense necessary from Jai Herbert to keep this fight standing, which is where he'll likely have more than enough success. I think Tapori's striking game is still coming along a little bit. He has good knockout power, obviously, as we've seen over his last couple fights. But where he gets his best work done... Is dragging fights to the ground and using his jujitsu to try to lock up a choke or get dominant positioning, get a ground and pound finish. I I, I get it. I, I get the angle that Hanato Moikano took a round and a half to submit and finish Jai Herbert. So that's probably what's going to happen here, right? But we know it doesn't. That's not how MMA math works. That's not how things usually go down. Perfect example that I can think of just off the top of my head: Guido Canetti. Goes out there and knocks out Chris Moutinho in less than a round, where it took Sean O'Malley, you know, two and a half rounds, <laughs> almost three full rounds to knock out Chris Moutinho. So it, it shit just happens at times. Sometimes submission opportunities open themselves up. Sometimes knockout opportunities open themselves up, and it may not be as long as it did uh, it took last time. It may not be as quickly as it was the other time. So. With, with Taporia, I feel like this guy, another kind of noobish take, like you kind of brought up from the Grundy and Americani yeah. fight, he has something to prove here. He wants to right that wrong of what happened in January. He wants to go out there. That's why he took this fight as quickly as he did. He goes, to get get me in there ASAP. Let me get steamroll this guy and let me get back to work at 145 pounds. I don't think that this is a long-term thing for him at 155 pounds because obviously we'll see that he's going to be outsized here. And once he starts going up against better and better competition, it's going to be harder for him to implement that grapple-heavy attack. This is fucking Jai Herbert. This guy's going to get taken down. This guy's going to get smashed on the mat. And this fight's going to be done within a round, in my opinion. So uh, I'm not paying minus 590 on Taporia. But... Under one and a half, minus 140, minus 150. I don't mind that. Fight won't start round two, minus 105. Give me some of that. Uh, Tuporia by KO, plus 175. Tuporia by sub, plus 100. Tuporia inside the distance is minus 280. Like, I would never uh, advise anybody betting that heavy of a chalk on an inside the distance, but I think he gets this fucking done ASAP. I don't think he has much issue with Jai Herbert. If your sole reasoning as to why Tuporia will struggle to finish uh, Herbert here is because of the Moicano fight, I feel like I have explained it perfectly that sometimes it happens quickly, sometimes it doesn't. Just look at my guy, Chris Moutinho, from the other week. How do you see this one going down, John? Yeah, I, I mean, look, <clears throat> I'm not going to make an impassioned case for Jai Herbert here. Uh, I do think, to some extent, the hype on... Taporia is getting a little out of hand though. Like if you actually contextualize what we've seen, like he, <clears throat> he goes out there in his debut, dominates Yusuf Salah, but he guesses bad down the stretch in that fight. Um, granted it was short notice, but still, you know, that's the only really time we've seen him be extended in the UFC. Knocks out Damon Jackson in two minutes. And then, you know, fights Ryan Hall, basically just fights intelligently, doesn't go into his guard and knocks him out with hammer fists. Look, all of that's really impressive. But he's being treated like he's like a top five guy already. And I just don't really think there's a whole lot there to suggest that that's actually the case, to be honest. And I, by the way, I'm not saying he's fraud either. I'm just saying, you know, we basically have 
a sample of him fighting no ones on the Spanish regional scene. And then this particular set of fights where it's like Zalal is not like, probably not UFC caliber, if we're being honest. You know, Damon Jackson, he knocked him out so fast, it's hard to take anything. Uh, hold, on, hold 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 on. I'd say Zalal is UFC caliber. Maybe is not. He's, I, I'd he's, say so. Like, look he at the got guys a couple Zalal's of beating. Like he's gotten a couple of dubs. I think like I don't think Peter he's in top twenty or top twenty five or anything like that. But I think he could still like wipe the floor with guys that actually don't deserve to be in the UFC. Maybe, but maybe, but it's like Zalal also got blanketed for fifteen minutes by Jose Mariscal like two fights before he came to the UFC. You know, and and, and it's like my, my point, my larger point being like what we know about Taporia. The data that we know is that he will try to grapple. He's got a great front choke series, and he hits pretty hard. Everything else is an unknown. You know, Zalal actually had some. If he stopped, if he didn't keep throwing, trying to throw flying knees at him, he would have never gotten taken down as easily in that fight. You know, he had some standing success when they were at range. Um, so I think Taporia's striking is a bit of an unknown. I mean, I'd favor Herbert comfortably there. I think, to be honest, um, his grappling. Look, obviously, he's a very dangerous submission grappler. <laughs> My big question is really his wrestling because I haven't really seen him get resistance there. It's mostly just single double. Like, single entry double legs where he's just getting the takedown immediately not having to work um can herbert stop that i don't really know you know he did okay against the doubles with moicano and then moicano just locked the body lock and trip him with really no problem at all i, I just don't think herbert has very good balance here so i'm inclined to think he probably can't keep it standing and if he can't keep it standing well then it probably goes downhill fast uh haven't really seen Herbert deal with a front choke before. I I'm guessing it's probably not good based on the rest of his grappling. But again, you know, if it turns out he can fight hands and extend this fight, who really knows? I'll be honest, I hate the fact that Tapor is going up to 55. You know, the guy's five foot seven with a shorter inch than Aljamain's reach than Aljamain's throwing. Like what are what why are you making this move? But you know, you know, short notice, he just wants to just get in there, get a win, get back down to 45, I think. <laughs> Uh, all I'm saying is it's very weird to me that the guy struggled to make 45 with his frame and now is coming in there at 55. I don't like it at all. But the bottom line is they're also making this fight for Taporia. That, that's just, you know, right off the bat here, you have to just understand, like, this is the UFC saying, okay, we like this kid. We want to hype him. He's going to meet Dana White in Vegas and taking photos with him. They're trying to get him to get him in here, get a quick submission, make this look good and get out of there. And honestly, I think that's probably what's going to happen here. He's going to probably go in there. Look, like I said, I have some questions about his wrestling. I just, you know, I just don't think Jai Herbert's the guy. You know, between the fact that one takedown could be the fight and the fact that Herbert just doesn't really seem to have balance, he's probably pretty limited to needing to hurt him early. Um, you know, maybe if he can survive as long as he did against Moicano, something could change. But... You know, yeah, Taporia slowed down against Zalal, but it took 12 minutes for that to happen. And I don't really think Herbert's likely to provide the resistance on the mat Zalal provi provided. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think Taporia is going to run through him and sub him. You know, it's clearly what the UFC wants. Uh, they gave him pretty much a perfect candidate. You know, if he doesn't go and dominate Jai Herbert, I'm not really sure where he goes from here, to be honest. Um, so, yeah, I, but like in terms of the props, it's just like, look, I probably would have bet Taporia at minus 300 down there, uh, minus 500, no interest. Like like you said, it's like what, minus 280 ends to win inside the distance? That's not very intriguing. KO is not very intriguing because if he's doing what he should be doing, he's not going to be KOing him, you know?
and even money on sub, not really. Like, I guess what I would go with here is probably the under. I mean, even that's like not that sexy at minus one fifty. The under one and a half, but Tapuria actually looking dominant here is probably contingent on a fast sub. And the bottom line is it probably factors in a lot of Herbert's win equity too, which is probably a quick quick KO. So. Yeah, I, I guess under is the best way to play it. I, I don't think there's much here that I'd recommend people put money on, though. Also, uh, can we, you know, have a talk with Jai Herbert's management? How are you going to get this guy to fight Hanato yeah. Moikano and Ilya Teporia within three fights? Chill. Off dog. the biggest win of his career, too. Exactly. Off exactly. The, right? <laughs> oh, great. You knocked out Kavo. You're feeling good. Now go fight Ilya Teporia in front of you, <laughs> in your home country. Like, of all places. <laughs> every other insane. Brit on here has got, well, not every other one, but most of the other British fighters on here have gotten at least stylistic matchups that favor them, you know? Instead, they give Jair really a Teporia. Maybe he wants to continue to contribute to his uh his folklore, right? Like the guy just goes out there, he's like, Oh, he fought Ilya Taporia and Hanato Moikano within the span of a year. Even well, though he didn't get his hand raised. Yeah, exactly. It'll be a great story <laughs> if he does actually get the win. Uh Herbert by KO is plus seven hundred for anybody that's interested, as well as Herbert by decision in case he does manage to get up and get his striking going, but not knock him out, plus eleven hundred. But come on, like I, I I don't know, John. Next week, if we come back to the show and Herbert's coming off a win from Teporia, I, I don't know what the fuck we're going to be doing. Well, I, I'll tell you what. The best outcome here, for being honest, is Herbert to just Herbert to get subbed in thirty seconds and Teporia to be minus two hundred against Evrov. That's what I'm rooting for. That's what I'm rooting for. I I hope they make that match again. That that would me too. Why be, wouldn't they? Yeah, they 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 got to do that. I know Evil uh, has that Ige coming up. So if he gets that Ige win, I'd be surprised if he actually wants that Deporia fight, considering yeah. he'll be so far off the rankings compared to him. But, but I hope like, they match up once uh, at a later date. Deporia fifty five can't be a permanent thing, right? Like who no, is no, he no. competing I'd be at in like no. a, like. He's not, you're gonna tell me Tapori is gonna go in there and compete with guys like Arvin Surikin? No. No, 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 no. One forty-five. On. That will be his home. Uh, yeah. At least what I think it is. Again, it should, I think it this needs is more, to be his home. Yeah, I think this is more <laughs> like, circumstantial than anything. But we'll see how it goes uh, this week, and hopefully he can get back past. Uh, what is it? The, the what's uh, Jai Herbert's nickname? The Black. The Black Country uh, Bang Banger yeah. Badger. Yeah, the Black Country Banger. Sure. Yeah. Whatever, whatever, whatever that means, my man. All right, let's move on to the next right here. We got Molly Meatball McCann talking about uh, nicknames. Uh, going up against Luana Dread Carolina. In terms of odds, we got minus 140 now on Molly McCann, plus 120 to return on Luana Carolina. Now, uh, seeing a lot more love out there for Carolina than I thought I would. Uh, you know, notoriously or historically speaking, a lot of people haven't really been the highest on her. But she goes out there and gets an underdog win against Lupi Godinez, who came in on six days' notice, fighting the weekend before, uh, going up a weight class against a much bigger opponent. That's where we see size come into play, which is hilarious that we're talking about it uh, right after the Teporia fight here. But that's where size matters, right? We saw Lupi really struggle to get Carolina to the ground, and I think size had a lot to do with that as well. Uh, Carolina is a big uh, woman for this weight class, right? She's missed weight a couple yeah. times at this weight class as well, so I don't blame Lupi for not getting the fight to the ground. Uh, and that's kind of what was the downfall from her. She was struggling to get the takedowns, and then on the feet, Carolina was just able to implement her range, her striking, uh, and even just use her own size again her in these clinch positions and get the better of her in that spot we're talking about a five foot two um 
a five foot two loop loopy Godina is going up against a five foot six Luana Carolina. Now we're getting Molly McCann, five foot four, not the biggest herself, but she is quite strong. She showcased it in other fights. Uh, but I think that this is a great matchup for her, honestly. I do think that this is going to look similar to the G Yoon Kim fight, where we see Kim kind of just sniper from the outside or try to sniper from the outside. But Molly does such a good job in terms of crashing the pocket with her strikes, getting some shots off. And sometimes she goes for takedowns off of those strikes. Or sometimes she just backs back off and just rinse and repeats with that striking style that she has. She she put up, I believe, 127 significant strikes against Ji Yoon Kim. She may not hit 100, 120 this time around, but I do think she'll get over that 100 mark here by just, again, rinse and repeating that crash pocket style of, uh, again, she's always going to be at a reach and size disadvantage more often than not. But she does a good job in terms of closing that distance with her speed, her agility, and then obviously her boxing to, to kind of make people respect her for that. I'm not big on Luana Carolina at all, right? Like I've, I've faded her a couple times uh, successfully, uh, but uh, I think that this is a good spot for her to go out there and uh, take another L, man. I, I, I do like Molly McCann. I'm not a big Molly McCann guy myself. I look to fade her as well. Both of these women, I look to fade. Uh, and more often than not, it's successfully. Uh, with Molly McCann, faded her with Lara Procopio, who's just way better of a fighter uh, than Luana Carolina in terms of going out there and establishing her game plan, which is just aggressiveness. Go out right off the bat, stay aggressive, stay in your opponent's face, pressure them, and then look for those takedowns. And she was able to land those takedowns. And with her black belt, she was able to maintain that top position and get that uh, decision victory. There was one sweaty moment where Molly McCann did throw up an armbar, and I was just like, oh, God, of course, a black belt is going to get armbarred by fucking <laughs> Molly McCann in this spot, which... I'm not like uh, I was impressed that Molly McCann was able to get that up. And I think if she gets that up here against uh, Luana Carolina, she could possibly take that arm home with her. You know, uh, Molly McCann via submission is currently sitting at plus uh, 1200 on certain spots. I think it's worth a little bit of a dabble if Luana Carolina is the one that ends up going for the takedowns here, which she could possibly get. I'm just not sold on her top control and her, and her ability to hold McCann down. So I could see a, uh, a scenario where McCann actually throws up some sort of submission and gets it. But I do think this fight is going to hit the over. I do think that we're going to see uh, McCann get the better of the striking. Uh, the roar of the crowd is obviously going to help her as well. Anytime she closes the distance and gets any offense off, the crowd is going to be going nuts and just no, uh, you, you know, doing nothing whenever Luana Carolina throws anything and lands anything. Even if Molly McCann misses by a mile, the crowd is going to go nuts and that's going to have an impact on the judges in the spot. So I get the steam coming in on Molly McCann. Personally, I got in on her money line a little bit earlier around that minus 120 range. Uh, but I do think she wins this fight via decision, which may be the best prop to take here. Plus 110. I don't mind that. Obviously, heavy chalk on the fight goes to decision at minus 300. The only thing that keeps me away from that is the possible armbar from guard situation that could possibly happen from either side here. I think it's more live on the McCann side than it is the Luana Carolina side, but I do see this fight going to a dis decision more often than not. I do lean with the hometown favorite as well in Molly McCann, like I said, via decision. How do you see this one? Am I talking up Molly McCann a little bit too much? Or no, do you no, no. Like I, I think it's a, it's a good fight for her, honestly. Like, you know, I, I thought Gion Kim was a more challenging fight stylistically for Molly than, um, Luana Carolina is, you know, Kim, at least she's big, she's long like Carolina, but she actually can box and she can maintain distance. And that's a tough matchup for McCann, who tends to not be the best defensive fighter ever. Uh, but Carolina, you know, at distance, she is not very good at all. You know, she's yeah. very easy to get inside on. And like, I kind of expect, first of all, McCann's output's just a lot higher than her. She's going to throw a lot more. 
she's the much better boxer. She should be winning boxing exchanges all fight. Honestly, you know, Carolina's a bet. You know, Pollyanna Battaglia was taking her down and controlling her. Like, Molly should be able to get takedowns here if she wants them, if we're being honest. Uh, the big, the only really big concern I have with McCann is I don't think she's the best manager of distance. And if she finds herself stuck in the clinch, you know, that is one place where I think Carolina can have success with like knees and elbows, similar to how she did in the Gadinias fight. But, you know, Molly's probably stronger than Gadinias is. I, I wish I'd looked at it a bit earlier because I probably would have taken the minus 120. It's just so hard because, like, I don't really rate Carolina's chances of submission that highly. And I, I think her chances of KO were fairly almost non-existent. And, and with that being the case, it's just, like, very, very hard for me to imagine her easily winning minutes in this fight. And so, yeah, I mean, I lean Molly here. I think she's clearly the side. And I think decision is, like, it's definitely, if you're playing a prop, the best way to play it, right? So, yeah, I agree. I agree. Glad that we're on the same side there. All right, let's keep this moving along. Next up, we got the return of Gunnar Nelson. He's taking on Takashi Sato, who's stepping in on short notice for Claudio Silva. Uh, even Takashi Sato been out of the cage for a while now. I believe the last time we saw him was November of 2020, but the last time we saw Gunnar Nelson was when he took a loss to Leon Edward or sorry, to Gilbert Burns back in September of 2019. Uh, it really looked like he was starting to fan out there, man. He was on a three or uh, two fight losing streak, one in uh, one and two, or sorry, one in three in his last four fights. Uh, obviously, picked up that win against Alex Oliveira uh, in, in the middle of that, uh, which didn't look the greatest, you know, early going. Uh, it seemed like Oliveira was having a lot of success early in that fight. Luckily, Gunny was able to get that takedown in the second round and eventually just absolutely destroy him with that one elbow that had him leaking all over the place. I was live for that fight. That was one of the crazy that, that happened Ooh, in Toronto, Toronto, right? Yeah, that was a Toronto card. That was one of the craziest things. And, and again, probably one of my favorite walkout moments as well with Alex Cowboy Oliveira having that uh, uh, balado song that he always comes out to. And then right after that, you see Gunnar Nelson come with his stoic, deadpan, fucking, you know, way down we go song, if anybody's ever heard that from Calio. But uh, probably one of the hilarious, most hilarious walkout situations I've ever seen. But uh, this seems pretty straightforward for Gunnar Nelson, right? He wants to go out there, get this fight to the ground. Takashi Sato, the majority of his losses coming via submission. G fucking Bilal Muhammad's getting a submission over this guy. You got to believe that Gunnar Nelson should be able to do the same thing here. But the the couple of things that have me scared, obviously his layoff. It's been a long time since we've seen inside the cage. The injury that he had apparently was a, a rib injury, like an upper yeah. rib injury, which affects like his shoulder and his collarbone and all that type of stuff. So that's a little bit of a concern here. Um, but if he comes in even like 75% or 80% of what we've seen from him in the past, he should be able to land takedowns here. His his karate style of striking should keep him safe because that's kind of what Sato uses as well. Uh, Sato, more often than not, kind of leans on his knockout power more than anything. That's how you normally see him getting his finishes. Uh, Sato by KO is currently sitting at plus 700. So if you think that you're going to see tremendous ring rust on Gunnar Nelson, maybe taking a hedge on that at plus 700, not too bad of an idea. But the fact that we have Gunnar Nelson via submission at minus 120 more than likely tells you how this fight will will likely go. So uh, I love Gunnar Nelson's takedowns and his his immediately or sorry his immediate knack for establishing dominant position. Like the guy, as soon as he gets him down, more often than not, you'll see him flow immediately to uh, full mount or even to uh, to to get the back of his opponent and eventually find that submission. 
I like Gunny here. I just can't trust him after such a long layoff, though. Uh, one of my favorite fighters. I really thought he would have a championship potential when he made his uh, debut in the UFC way back in the day. But uh, it's really fanned out. But this is a very winnable fight for him. Not to mention the short notice nature for Takashi Sato having to fly across the world to get to, to London as well. Not to mention uh, he's been out of the cage a long time himself. Very weird that he decided to take this fight on short notice, whereas you'd expect him to be like, okay, I want a full training camp to get back in there as, as best as I can. So that's a bit of a red flag on the Sato side. But if you like Sato, you got to believe that the KO is the best way that he gets it done, plus 700, not too bad. But on the Gunnar Nelson side, he more than likely gets his takedown and he wraps up a neck. Uh, yeah, submission minus 120. If you don't want to be too greedy inside the distance at minus 150 in case he gets the back and just starts pounding on him, that's a possibility as well. But from what we've seen, Gunny likes to go for submissions more from ground and pound. So I completely understand that. Uh, yeah, Gunny submission, that's kind of what I'd go with. How do you see this one? Yeah, I mean, pretty much the same. I, I kind of think, I, I mean, Sato's best chance is going to be early because once the fight, I mean, look, we saw Miguel Baeza go through Sato on the mat. And the reality is, you know, Gunner's just a totally different level of jiu-jitsu. You know, the guy is very, – he's very well-versed there. You know, the guy grappled with me and Maya for three rounds and didn't get subbed. Now, he did lose that fight handily, but, you know, he managed to survive that fight. Um, it's actually kind of hilarious looking at the guys that Gunner's lost to, like Owens and Nibio, Leon Edwards, Gilbert Burns, Maya. <laughs> like, they have – like, he is not – he is the epitome of the guy that if you are not on that top level, he's probably going to beat you and smoke you doing it. But if you I, are I, there, sorry. I, I was at the Damian Maya fight. I believe that was UFC 194, the night that Connor knocked out yeah. Aldo. And I was in tears, like with, with Gunnar Nelson, just keep giving up his back and just can't do yeah. anything about it. I think uh, <laughs> Damian Maya rode his back for like 14 minutes of that fight because it Beat always up ended bad. up in that position. Yeah. Sorry. Continue. But yeah. And I, I think Sato falls under that category. Like, you know, could Sato yeah. have some success stuffing takedowns early? Yeah, I do, and I think he hits hard enough and he's dangerous enough that him maybe clipping Nelson is probably in play, but I also think that's probably the only way he wins this fight. You know, eventually the takedown's going to come, and when it does, Gunner's probably going to rip through him here. I, I just, you know, what I've seen from Sato on the mat against Bilal, against Michael Franca, against um, Baeza, you know, now he's fighting Gunner Nelson. It's like I, I just can't imagine a scenario where Nelson doesn't just tear through him there. Uh, you know, you could bet sub minus 120. I, I do like the inside the distance for Nelson to minus 150 just because, I mean, the thing, the, the lasting image in my mind from that Oliveira fight is those elbows he threw that split his head open, which were absolutely, you know, barbaric and savage. Um, so, like, uh, you know, when, it, when it's that close together, you're talking about 30 cents, you know, I'll take the inside the distance just to cover it in case, you know, he does something like that here and puts him out. Um, but, yeah, I, I mean – I can't really find a good case for Sato other than him clipping him. I guess if you think if you're confident Sato can keep standing, I'd play him by KO. But yeah, I like Nelson inside the distance. Minus 250 is what the fight doesn't go to decision is for anybody that likes parlaying those. I think that's a damn good spot to do. Not horrible. Here. Yeah, honestly. Yeah. All right. Let's keep this more along. We got a couple more fights to go. Next up, we got another hype train. Trying to pick up his second one inside the UFC. Patty Pimlet going up against Rodrigo Vargas. In terms of odds, we got minus 500, sorry, minus 590 as well on the 
Patty Pimlet's side, plus 425 on Rodrigo Vargas. Uh, UFC knows exactly what they're doing here with this matchup, right? Like that Luigi Vendramini one was a little bit too close for the cash cow that they're hoping to bank on with uh, with Patty here. But luckily, Patty's durability shows off in that Vendramini fight, comes back and finds his own knockout in the same round that he was able to get the finish. Uh, sorry, that he got rocked as well. <coughs> Excuse me. It was funny that he was originally scheduled to fight Jared uh, Gordon, or at least that was the talk of the town, or Jared Gooden, I believe. Jared Gordon. Jared yeah, Gordon. Jared, Jared no, Flash Jared Gordon. Jared Gordon. Jared yeah. Gordon. There you go. He was uh, scheduled, or not scheduled, but at least rumored to be fighting him. Uh, that fight didn't transpire because uh, I probably would have put a decent amount on Jared Gordon, knowing that he'd be <laughs> the underdog in this fight. In this fight, But uh, he gets Rodrigo Vargas. Uh, pretty plain and simple here. Patty Pimlet, when he's at his best, he can use his takedowns, which I'm surprised we didn't see more of in that Vendramini fight. Although Vendramini, very good black belt in his own right. Maybe that's what kept Patty from trying to get the takedowns there. But I think that he sees the path here against Vargas. He should be able to get the takedown without much uh, without much uh, resistance. And then from there, I think he does absolute work from on top. I think he gets Vargas out of there pretty quickly as well. I think, again, the UFC knows exactly what they're doing. Uh, uh, they, they tried allowing Rong Zhu to get that same uh, treatment from Rodrigo Vargas, <laughs> where they kind of fed him Rodrigo Vargas. Uh, minus 250, Rong Zhu was that night. But... Uh, Wrong, just not the guy that a lot of people expected him to be, right? He's very timid in terms of his output in that fight against Vargas, which is why Vargas was able to get out ahead of him. But whenever Wrong wanted to get this fight to the ground, it seemed like he could do it without much issue. And I'm expecting the same thing here for Patty Pimblett. I'm hoping that it's not like he's he's obligated to go out there and give the fans a slugfest because he's fighting in front of them. For him, it should be, let's just go out there, get this fight to the ground, and give the fans a quick finish because that's more than likely what he should be able to get in the spot. So, uh, again, minus 590, never really that great to to advise betting that type of line. Uh, maybe the under one and a half at minus 130, I could see that being a good spot for Patty to get a quick finish. Uh, Patty inside the distance currently sitting at minus 200. Again, another squash match type of, type of odds there for the inside the distance, but it makes sense. Uh, I, I'm just a little bit uh questioning whether i should be taking pimble by submission at plus 180 or pimble by ko at plus 140 because he could go for both right he could absolutely smash from on top or he could eventually find that choke as well uh, i can't come up with a good enough reason to back rodrigo vargas here because i'm one of the first guys that's going to be like bad against patty i i don't think he's as good as his as his hype as making him out to be and i think that bar stool is unfortunately going to be kicking themselves after he starts taking a couple of l's but yeah, I, I like Patty to win this fight. I think he wins inside the distance. I'd say under one and a half is probably the best way to go about it because I'm expecting him to go out there and wanting to get this done ASAP, try to get that crowd to go into a frenzy and just uh, have a, another picturesque moment for his uh, post-fight interview, which was fucking hilarious last time around. But yeah, I like Patty. think he runs to Vargas. I'm hoping that you're agreeing with me here, Mr. Dog Whisperer. Yeah. Let's see how it goes. Yeah, I, I bet Vargas big against wrong. This is not... That's wrong, though. I, and look, I, I don't really rate Patty, to be honest. Uh, you know, Jared Gordon, I don't think people realize it, with 30 to 26, this guy with pretty much zero issue. Um, <laughs> don't tell like, him I, yet, John. Don't tell him yet. I, 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 I yet. Know. They don't want to hear that. Him and they <laughs> to be honest, this almost makes you know the fade down the road even better. Look, the bottom line is Vargas is a tough guy. He's a tough Mexican dude. He can take a shot. He'll go in there and throw in the pocket if you let him. The guy can't grapple up. You know, he has bad takedown defense. Uh, you know, when he's ended up on the mat, he just doesn't know how to get up. You know, you saw the fight with Alex De Silva, and I like Alex De Silva. But, you know, De Silva's not 
an elite submission grappler by any means. And he was basically able to just ride him out on the mat for for loads and loads and loads of time in that fight. Uh, and, you know, he's just dealing with another level of submission grappler here in Pimblet. Uh, You know, Patty, if he's smart, look, you know, I've seen some people say, oh, you know, maybe Patty's excited. He's going to come out and strike with him. Patty's a nutcase. If he does that, that would be that would be how Vargas wins the fight is if Patty does that. But if you look, I don't think Patty's a great wrestler, but I don't think he needs to be here. And that's the thing. It's like, I think he's going to get the takedowns if he goes for him. And once he's there, he's probably the most dangerous submission grappler Vargas has ever fought. Uh, I expect him to be able to get to the back pretty easily here. I'm kind of perplexed. Books are lining KO closer than submission. Um, that I know he has like two finishes via ground and pound in his career, but like I, I don't really think Vargas is going to get pounded out on the mat, to be honest. You know, he'll move if you're throwing ground and pound on him. And, and so it's like, I actually think a sneaky bet is not Patty. If you have a book that offers not Patty by KO at like oh, minus 170, isn't bad. Um, the other side of that is, I, I, I mean, look, it sounds square, but it's just like, I, I think Patty winning this by submission is by far the most likely outcome of this fight. So I would take the plus 200 there. And to be honest, if you don't think Patty is likely to sub it, then take the goes the distance at, a, at plus 200, right? Because if Patty doesn't sub him, I think Vargas will survive. I, I think Patty, and I think Patty really, I would say the vast majority of that sub equity is going to be in round one. So I think kind of tying it to round one, which I mean, what is sub round one? Uh, plus 300, that's not much better than regular submission. Yeah, but also... I kind of think if he doesn't get him out of there in round one, it probably goes the distance, right? You know, if, if Vargas can hang while he's dry, he's probably going to survive takedowns in two and three, I think. Um, but yeah, I would take Patty sub. I like it. I like it. And again, uh, there's no like Patty hate here. It's just more so no. we think that he's a little bit more. I just more don't think he's very good. Yeah, exactly. I think that like he's fun for the sport. He's a great entertainer. Like he brings eyeballs to the sport. I'm completely on board with that. But I just think that people are taking that and comparing it to his fighting skill, which I just don't think matches up with his high level. Bro, he got 50-45 by Nad Naramani in a fight that was all <laughs> grappling. That that <laughs> that happened, believe it or not. <laughs> Dude, the funniest part about that was that he had uh, he had declined a UFC contract before that fight because he said, I want to prove to you guys that I'm worth more money. And then he loses the Nad, Mar Nani, Nad <laughs> Naramani fight. Goes out there, gets another win, gets another contract offer from the UFC and says, nope, let me go prove it once again to you guys that I'm the shit. Loses to Soren back. And then <laughs> takes a bunch of time off, wins two fights against nobodies. And I was like, okay, yeah, I'll take the contract now. I'll take the contract now, guys. We'll see how it goes. But again, yeah, I, I like the kid. I think he's fun to watch. He's great for the he sport. He is fun. Yeah. I, and I'm hoping nothing but the best for him. But uh, if you give me legit dog money on Jared Gordon against him in, in the future, I'm taking dog money. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I wish he was very good, to be honest, because his kind of personality is exciting for the sport. I just don't see yeah. it personally. Yeah. We'll see. We'll see. Maybe we're wrong. All right. Co-main event time. Getting a lot of talk on the timelines here between Arnold Allen and Dan Hooker. Minus 115 on Allen. Minus 105 on Dan Hooker. Uh, money coming in on Allen. I'm seeing minus 120 at certain spots. And I, I don't really get it. I got in on Dan Hooker a little bit earlier this week at minus 111-ish. Uh, I, I thought more money would come in on Hooker. You know, he has the name value here. He's a more proven fighter uh, going out there. And, you know, just look at his resume. The guy's just going out there and fighting every fucking body and having good success against most of them as well. Whereas Arnold Allen, 
eight fights in seven years, not really that active, got a win over Sadiq Youssef, which, you know, was largely an, an active fight outside of Allen dropping him, I believe, once in the first round and once in the second round. He lost the third round, in my opinion, because Sadiq knew he was down, so he was pretty much marching him down the entire time. But, like, there's fights that are really concerning for Arnold Allen, the way he just wins them by a hair. And I think if you're going to have that type of fight here against Dan Hooker, you're in for trouble, man, because Dan Hooker, he throws volume. Uh, he uses his, his, uh, his even at 155, he's a pretty big guy. Even at 145, he's going to be even bigger. And he uses his size very well against some of his opponents in terms of kind of uh, overpowering them in the clinch or even just going for takedowns of his own. Uh, his takedown defense is very good. Uh, you wouldn't, you know, obviously get that from the Islam Mahachev fight, but again, it's fucking Islam Mahachev. But Dan Hooker has great hips. He has great awareness for takedowns coming. So I'd be surprised if Arnold, Arnold Allen is successful with that type of approach here. And then in the striking, man, I think Hooker will do a good job in terms of maintaining distance, putting the volume on him, and just kind of dancing circles around him. The big cage as well helps him to kind of use as much real estate as possible there. And I think that we'll see him, uh, you know, have a classic Dan Hooker performance. I get it. Arnold Allen is 17 and one, and you know, he's looked nothing short of legit in most of his UFC fights. But I think that this is a big step up from him from Sudik Youssef to Dan Hooker. Completely different stylistic matchups, but also very different in terms of level of competition as well. This is going to be a big test for uh, Arnold Allen. You know, 2019 or 2018, uh, Gilbert Melendez is nothing to really take too much stock from. Having a close ish fight. With Nick Lentz, not the greatest look either, even though he still gets his win there. And then beating Sodiq Yusuf the way that he did, all he did was land two knockdowns in that fight. Uh, I see a lot of people saying, oh, you know, the chin of Dan Hooker is a bit of a concern. I think that's being overblown uh, to a certain extent as well, because Arnold Allen, not really a crazy knockout uh, puncher, right? The guy goes out there and the last time he's gotten a knockout win was 2014 in Cage Warriors. He's recorded three knockdowns inside the UFC. Okay, great, but he hasn't finished any of them. You know, I mean, Dan Hooker is not going clean out for many of these crazy strikes. Obviously, Michael Chandler is going to send you to the moon. I completely understand that. But are you trying to tell me that Arnold Allen has the same knockout power that Michael Chandler does? I wouldn't say so. So uh, I do like the Dan Hooker side here. Uh, I will give this to Allen. Very durable, right? He's taking some shots. He keeps keeps on coming forward. I'd be surprised if Dan Hooker puts him out. So Hooker via decision is probably the prop that I'd go with, which is currently yeah. sitting on plus two hundred, plus two twenty five on certain spots. But even his money line, let's not let's not get crazy with it. I know this is the prop in you up show, but the money line at near even money is a steal in my opinion. So, uh, but uh, again, this is a prop show. At the end of the day, decision is probably how I'd go about this one. How do you see this one going down? Yeah, uh, unless Hooker. Sorry, 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 John. Sorry, John. One, la one last thing I want to say. I'm seeing a lot of people give him shit about the hundred cut to 145 pounds and saying, "Oh, look how he looks right now." You guys have no idea how much weight most of these fighters cut on weigh-in day, just because like it's not documented. Twelve to fifteen pounds the night before. Yeah, exactly. Usually. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's not like it's it doesn't have as much of a scope on it because Dan Hooker's obviously going back down a division now here. But there's so many fighters that cut like 20 pounds of weight in a week. It is ridiculous how much attention yeah. that is getting I, I think it's a non-factor and if you're basing this fight solely off of that you're gonna you're gonna be disappointed come fight night because dan hooker is gonna go out there and still fight the way that he fights yeah go ahead, I, I mean Sorry. i don't think people realize that like guy like guys that need to cut 30 pounds and they come into camp they don't go eight weeks of camp and come into fight week five pounds away from weight they usually go eight weeks of camp and come into fight week like 20 pounds away from weight and fight the night before weigh-ins like 14 pounds away like, that's pretty standard, you know? It, it, it's not that uncommon. But 
Yeah. I, I mean, look, Dan Hooker, unless he's badly compromised, and let's just talk about it right out the gate. Look, the guy fought it. Fought, he's had more fights, 145 pounds in his career, than he has 155 pounds. You know, I've seen people like, oh, well, you know, maybe, you know, the weight is why, you know, he got better at 155. It's like, or it's because he went to 155 when he was 26 and getting better. That that seems to be the far more likely scenario, you know. Um, and it's like the guy's never been dropped at 145 pounds. The only guy to KO, and look, he fought, he went to war with Dustin Poirier and didn't get dropped. The only guy to KO him is Michael Chandler, who is a huge hitter. I'm not really worried about his durability here. Maybe I'll be wrong, but guess what? Not a single person who's saying, oh, the weight cut, the weight cut, the weight cut, can actually say for sure that it's going to have any impact on this fight. It's baseless speculation when the actual data that we have suggests that he can fight at 145 pounds. Anyway, with that out of the way, I think he's going to kill Arnold, to be honest. I, I think I don't understand this line. I think it is crazy. I've seen like 70% of topologies picking Arnold Allen. Everybody's betting Arnold Allen this week. Like, oh, you know, he's legit. He's the truth. It's like, okay. The guy would have lost to Sadiq Hughes if he didn't drop him twice. He touched on. He got out attempted by Nick Lentz. Nick Lentz was walking this dude down and took a round off in striking. He only outlanded Jordan Rinaldi at distance by six strikes. Look, I'm not saying he's bad. He's a slick boxer. He's a technical boxer. He uses the back. He can fight on the back foot better than a lot of the guys Hooker's fought in the past. No question about it. But the reality is he's very low volume. He lets guys get off strikes on him constantly. Um, you know, he doesn't – you know, the Sadiq win's impressive, but actually maybe a little less impressive after Alex Caceres was boxing up Sadiq in the pocket last <laughs> week, to be, on, to, be honest, to be honest with you. Um, but it's just like what I've seen from Allen doesn't scream to me top five, eight, ten fighter. I, I just haven't seen – you know, he hasn't fought a particularly hard schedule in the UFC. Sadiq's the toughest fight he had, and he lost a majority of minutes in that fight. And yet the only fight that he's really put a huge stamp on it's Gilbert Melendez, who was ancient at that point in his career, you know? And, and so it's like I have a guy in, in Allen who's a slick technical boxer, but he's letting guys who would be plus 500 against Hooker hang in fights and almost beat him. And now we have Dan Hooker who, look, he's not as technical as Allen. But first of all, Arnold Allen's always used to being able to control range and being bigger. He's going to be giving up five inches of height and five inches of reach in this fight. He's never had to deal with that before. He's fighting a guy with Hooker who is going to pressure him and is going to throw a ton of output. Hooker is very reliable to keep a pace. He's going to throw kicks, and the body's going to be open there for him. Um, Hooker's a lot stronger than he is. He's going to be able to have success in the clinch here. If you want to talk about who's got the higher chance to KO, Hooker is a serious hitter. Allen, like you pointed out, he's got a couple knockdowns, but also look at the guys he's knocked down. You know, he clips Sadiq, but Sadiq's been hurt by a lot of guys, you know. Um, he's not putting anybody away. I feel very confident saying Hooker is going to be landing the harder shots here. I feel very confident saying he's going to be landing a lot more shots here. Um, and another thing to talk about, and you, you kind of touched on it, it's like I mentioned this with Olam Bekov and Elliott. When you see guys perform at a certain level, that performance generally doesn't spike up when they also go up a level. If anything, it regresses down. I don't really see how this can be an even spike, or frankly, how Hooker can be under like minus 180, minus 200, unless Allen massively outperforms his history to date here. And expecting him to outperform the way he's performed against Nick Lentz and Sadiq Youssef against Dan Hooker just doesn't seem right. Like, I get Hooker's lost three of four, but look at the guys he's losing to. If he had fought Dustin Poirier over a three-round fight, he would have won that fight unanimously. Dustin Poirier also southpaw, who is a lot better than Arnold Allen is. You know, the guy beat Paul Felder over five rounds. He just beat Nazrat. I'm not really sure Allen's better than Nazrat, if I'm being completely honest. Like, I... I Maybe he is, but, you know, at least, you know, Nazareth's been tested a little bit. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. And then 
I mean, could Allen grapple Hooker? Maybe, but the only guy to really maul Hooker on the mat is Islam. Like, Gilbert Burns struggled to grapple Hooker. You know, I, I just, I don't see it, man. I, I really think this is just a different level than anything Allen's experienced before. I, I really think unless Hooker's badly compromised, and again, I don't really think that's an assumption that you can make. I I think he should handle him. I, I, I honestly do. I think it's his kind of... This is kind of nutty. I know that people are like, oh, you know, watch out for the British judges. Guys, if he outlands them 100 to 50, the British judges aren't going to matter. Like that, that's, I, I I really like, I'm big on Hooker at minus 110. I'm going to like full max it if he gets out to plus 120. Um, it's my most convicted play in a while. If I'm wrong, I'm wrong. If he's compromised, he's compromised. In terms of a prop, look, I agree with you. You don't need a prop to spend Hooker, but also decision plus 250 is probably crazy. Allen seems like a durable guy. Maybe take a poke at that. But I think Hooker's going to roll here. And I'm a guy that likes Allen, right? I, I've bet on him in the past. I bet on him against Sadiq Yusuf. Took the money there. Yeah. But I just don't think that this is a good matchup for him, especially on the one of the points that you touched on. He's not a high-volume guy. He's he's quite low-volume. And how are you going to be able to win judges' decisions unless you record a knockdown, unless you record a knockout or something like that? Hooker's going to be up on him on numbers easily. Like, it's going to be too tough yeah, yeah. for Allen to come back the longer that this fight goes, in my opinion. So... That, that's kind of the difference here. I, I'm seeing comments about Allen being the faster fighter here. The only Maybe. thing that, yeah, you know, probably. the only thing that will benefit is if he's able to get the knockdown or the knockout here. Otherwise, speed won't mean anything here because he's going to be eating all the damage and all the, the volume and the output from Hooker. I also, it's like 41-year-old Nick Lentz, who was really slow, was closing distance and landing on him. Like, Nick Lentz was able to keep striking competitive in that fight. Do you really think Hooker, who is so much bigger than Nick Lenz and so much better, isn't going to be able to? I Like, to me, it's just like, I, I've seen nothing for me that suggests Allen can play like an Israel Adesanya outside type game here. You know, it's just, I haven't seen it, so. Yeah. Uh, again, I see the, the the whole hometown kind of argument as well, if this just goes to the judges, but I think we laid it out pretty well. I don't think it's going to be that close. Like, sure, maybe in the, the Molly McCann and, and Luana Carolina fight, and if you're backing Carolina, it could be a concern because that could play a closer. I don't see this one playing out close, especially if uh, Hooker able, is able to get off the, on the volume that he normally gets off on. So, uh, yeah. Maybe we'll look like idiots come next week, but we'll see how it goes this weekend. I feel like we have a pretty, pretty solid good case. Won't, the we'll see. Yeah. All right. We are about to go over the main event here, but first and foremost, shout out to the 130 live viewers joining us on this Thursday afternoon. Make sure you guys hit that like and subscribe. Show my guy John some love as well. Hit him on Twitter at MMA Fox. And then check out his own podcast as well, which comes out every Wednesday evening, uh, 10 p.m. Eastern, the Club and Sub podcast. Him and his boys, they go live every week just to break down the card. Link is in the description below for their uh, channel. Make sure you guys go show some love and hit that channel with the subscribe as well. All right, let's get to the main event here. We got Alexander Volkov taking on Tom Aspinall. Minus 125 on Tom Aspinall, plus 105 the return on Alexander Volkov. I'm gonna, John. I'm gonna do my best to not get heated about this one because I feel like I've just been seeing some stupid ass takes all throughout the week on the Tom Aspinall side of things. I will say this about Tom: he's fast, he's agile, he has some good knockout power. And maybe he can connect on the chin of Volkov and put him out. But if he doesn't, if he doesn't get past, if he gets past round one, we're gonna see that completely diminished. The speed is gonna go away. The power is going to go away, and Volkov is going to start to, to take over just as he has in prior five-round fights. 
Now, I see people saying, okay, Volkov is not looking like he used to in his last two fights. First and foremost, two fights ago, his fighting still a gun. Consensus number two heavyweight in the division. Maybe number one if he had some takedown defense. It's zero motherfucking God, okay? I'm going to chalk up that out. That's completely fine. I'll, I'll live with that loss any day of the week. The Marcin Tybura fight. He won that fight, and people are still detracting from him. Yeah, it wasn't the best Alexander Volkov fight. Yeah, it wasn't the one that we're used to seeing. But I'm going to chalk that up to uh, a blip on the radar. Again, losing to Siragan is losing to Siragan. That has nothing to do with this fight against Tom Aspinall, in my opinion, because Siragan is one of the best at maintaining distance, making fights look not as good, or making fighters not look not as good as they actually are, is what it is. Marcin Tybura won, sure. Okay, maybe he lost a little bit of a step, but I think I'm just going to chalk that up to an anomaly. The guy's 33 years old, still, still can be in his fighting prime and can still go out there and have solid performances. Now he's going up against Tom Aspinall, where uh, the large majority of the win equity on Tom Aspinall is a first-round knockout. My guy, Tom As or sorry, uh, Alexander Volkov, has only ever been finished by knockout twice in 43 fights at heavyweight. Twice! That is insane. Insane that he's only been stopped twice. One of those coming in the first round against one of the best heavyweights outside of the UFC at that point in time, Vitaly Minikov in round one. And his only other loss via knockout, we know it, the last second knockout by Derek Lewis uh, a couple of years ago uh, where I had to, unfortunately, rip up my lock of the night ticket on Alexander Volkov that night. But if he continues to show what he has shown in the past, which is being very difficult to blitz in on, very difficult to close that range against, and very difficult to land that big shot on, Tom Aspinall is going to struggle here. And, okay, he took down Andre Arlovsky and submitted him in the second round. That was like a like one of the more flash-in-the-pan types of submissions we've ever seen. Uh, credit to him for having the fight IQ to go for the submission and that transition. But Andre Arlovsky did nothing to fight that choke. Literally tapped as soon as the guy got his arm around his neck. We're going to see way more fight out of, out of Alexander Volkov in that type of situation. And I'd even be surprised if we ever see him in that type of situation. Now, the only other guys to have crazy grappling success as of recently against Alexander Volkov was Curtis Blades. You telling me Tom Aspinall has wrestling like Curtis Blades? No. Is that what you tell me? John, I told you I'm trying not to get fired up about this breakdown, <laughs> but I just have to. We see this time and time again where we have a prospect that comes out and starts starching dudes, and then once he gets a legitimate step up in competition, he falls short. That's where I exactly believe that this is. Alexander Volkov is not washed. He's not on a crazy decline. If you show me two fights, three fights in a row of him on a decline, I'll accept it. But the fact that he's on a two-fight losing streak and because, or sorry, uh, sorry, he had that fight against Saragon two fights ago where he lost against one of the best heavyweights of all time. I'm not saying that's a decline. I'm just saying that he wasn't the better fighter that night. The Tybura fight still didn't look the greatest, but still won the fight. Still dug in deep in that third round, won that third round when it was easily 1-1 going into that third round. I think we see Volkov survive not even survive handle that first round uh, of whatever Aspinall is going to throw at him and then start taking over in round two start taking even more over in round three and possibly find that finish by the ending of round three early round four I don't think Aspinall has a gas tank to go like that one other thing I want to point out about Aspinall go back and watch that Andre Olovsky fight it was closer than people are making it out to be. Yeah. He hurt him in that second or, or midway, midway through that first round. Couldn't put him away. And hey, Andre Arlovsky is supposed to be chinny as hell. Why couldn't he knock out Andre Arlovsky in that first round? Right? That The whole consensus has always been Andre Arlovsky is one of the chinniest guys in the division. And hard-hitting Tom Aspinall couldn't put him out. He hurt him, but couldn't put him out. 
And then after that exchange, you see him push up on Jarlowski against the cage and just hold on to him for like a minute, a minute and a half. His hands on the hips breath. in the third round. Hands the second round. on the hips going into the second round. But even in that first round, holding up uh, uh, Andre Arlovsky against the cage, trying to get his breath back, trying to get his cardio back. If he finds Alexander Volkov in that same situation, Volkov's not letting him rest there. Volkov's digging knees to the bodies. Volkov's digging under hooks, getting out of that position, and noticing that there's blood in the water, and he's going to go right after it and get that finish himself. So there's two ways that I'm playing this fight. Money line Alexander Volkov. That is a no-brainer. I'm waiting on the opportunity to see where that line peaks. I saw plus 113 the other day. It's back down to plus 108 on Pinnacle. I think that we're still going to see more love on Tom Aspinall coming in because I am still seeing other people, even guys that I respect on the Tom Aspinall side, which I just don't really understand. Either way, I'm playing Volkov money line, but I'm also going to play the under three and a half because I think that it does cover that, you know, possibility that Tom Aspinall is that crazy knockout power kind of guy and he finds the chin of Volkov and Volkov is, you know, uh, washed or whatever the fuck we want to call him. That covers that scenario. But it also covers the scenario that I think is going to happen, which is Volkov chopping this guy down, beating him up to the body, similar to what he did to uh, Walt Harris later on in that fight and then eventually finishing him by that three and a half round mark. So it covers both angles for me. Either Volkov gets knocked out early and I only take about like a unit, maybe less than a unit loss, or I catch both of those tickets and it's off to red panty night for your boy. So I like Volkov, Volkov a lot here. Volkov round, let's take the round props here on Volkov. Uh, I, I wouldn't even mind starting as early as round two. Volkov round two plus 1200. Volkov round three plus 1600 Volkov round four plus 2200 and I'd be surprised if this hits round five I don't even think it hits round five but if you want to be that crazy motherfucker Alexander Volkov round five plus 2800 uh Volkov via TKO that's currently sitting at plus 350 which is absolutely atrocious good god uh and even Volkov inside the distance plus 275 I wish you were going to be on the Tom Aspinall side so we can have a heated debate here, <laughs> but I know that you're going to be on my side as well here. Please fill in the gaps of where I probably... Uh, yeah, I mean, look, I don't even like hate Tom Aspinall. I think he's a decent prospect. He's obviously carries good speed for heavyweight, right? He hits pretty hard. He's a good boxer. He's obviously got decent jiu-jitsu. Uh, but to date, at least, what he's shown in terms of his striking is fairly basic. You know, Arlovsky was able to touch him up pretty good whenever he actually went forward on him and we've also never really seen him deal with somebody who's <clears throat> gonna be, actually do attritional damage like he's never faced someone who's just going to teep kick him from a position where he can't hit them uh he's never faced somebody who's gonna throw leg kicks at him the way volkov's going to he's never fought somebody that's going to put out the kind of volume volkov's going to in general you know and that's kind of the thing for me like you can say he looked bad last fight he did but like first of all he's a 33 year old heavyweight how many 33 year old heavyweights go over a cliff almost none like ever um second of all he had a kid five days earlier i can tell you guys from experience that will absolutely fuck up the sleep schedule um <laughs> uh but like seriously so it's like i'm with you on that it's like i need to see him really like display that kind of you know sluggishness for a couple fights in a row to think it's a thing look bottom line these are fighters you know you see guys in the nba or the nba or the nfl have a bad game or an off night and no one really questions it the mma guys an off night it's like oh shit his career might be over. Look out. It's like a guy can't come out here and just not look great for a night. Nonetheless, he 30-27 type war no matter what. So it still didn't matter. Now, look, I'd be worried if he comes out like that. But I don't think you can just expect it. Um, look, Aspinall can take his head off. He's fast. He hits hard. 
It could happen early in this fight. I, I don't know how likely I think it is, though. Like, re-watching the fights with Gon and Harris, Gon and Harris are both faster than um, than Aspinall is. And, you know, Volkov didn't really have a ton of issues reading the head strikes from either of them. You know, he didn't get land on the head much. It's just that Gon's strike diversity is so much more than what he's going to see from Aspinall here. And also, Gon just so much quicker on his feet getting in and out of the pocket. Um <clears throat> But still, like, I don't really think Aspinall is going to be able to just blitz him and land kill shots there. I don't think Aspinall is going to be able to find the clinch that easily. And if he does, I'm not sure he's the better clinch fighter. So, it, it you know, there's a lot of question marks about Aspinall, period. But what we have seen, I feel like pretty confident saying that Volkov's the better striker, to be honest. Uh, I, I know I've seen people advocate for a live bet, dodge the early Aspinall danger. I just don't think it's a lock that Volkov loses the first round. You know, we haven't seen uh, Aspinall have to deal with somebody who's going to kick him and has a range-based game where he can't touch him. Um, I think Volkov's going to volume him up. I don't really think it's that likely that he gets KO'd. And if he doesn't get KO'd, does Aspinall have a minute-winning style? I, I didn't really think so against Arlovsky. I feel very confident in saying Volkov's not getting grappled here. <clears throat> you know, yeah, I, I don't know. I, you you kind of summed it up, so I don't have a ton to add. I just kind of think, look, the bottom line is I'm betting a guy with 40 fights who's gone five rounds multiple times in his career and has fought and competed with the best guys in this division. The dude landed 115 significant strikes over five rounds against Ciro Gan. <clears throat> Tom Aspinall is a guy who fought Alan Baudot, will be out of the UFC soon, Jake Collier, look, we all love Jake Collier. Hey, but hey bottom don't, line you, don't you? Collier, the smirks, Jake my Collier guy, Jake not challenging for a title. Uh, Arlovsky, who look, Arlovsky's good, but the reality yeah. is Volkov would be minus 400 against Arlovsky. Like, that's yeah. just the reality of where that we get locked. And then Spivak, who, look, he hit him in an elbow and knocked him out. Cool. Um, Bout, I, I said Arlovsky, future Hall of Famer. I agree, but he's 43, dude. <laughs> the guy's not competing with Alexander Volkov. Like, the jump from Arlovsky in 2022 to <clears throat> Alexander Volkov is absolutely fucking insane. Um, Brandon thinks I've never seen an Aspinall fight. Apparently, the eight <laughs> hey, minutes hey, of tape hey, on him show hey, remarkable hey, 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 strike right, diversity. John, John. This show's about us. Don't worry. Let the comment section do what they're saying. I respect him. Either the way, section. I feel pretty he's good about my read here. I, I honestly think if he doesn't get nuked out here, he's going to just easily have volume, to be honest. Yeah. Um, it's going to be a multi-unit bet for me. People, everybody and their mother are still betting on Tom Aspinall, so it looks like the line's still going up. Um, hopefully, it pushes out to plus 150 on fight day. That would be great. I personally think it should be about minus 125 to minus 150 for Volkov. Like, I'm not saying Volkov should be a big favorite. But I think given the unknowns with Aspinall combined with Volkov's resume and what he's done against real contenders compared to Aspinall kind of shit-stopping a bunch of guys and knocking out or, or subbing on Jarolovsky at this stage of his career, there's really no reason he should be a favorite. It doesn't really make much sense. Like, laying spots like Tom Aspinall here is just how you lose money. Um, <clears throat> like you said in the beginning, how many guys do we see take this huge step up in competition as favorites and actually pay off their price? It happens from time to time, but often they don't. And again, Aspinall is not a guy that I'm like uber passionate about fading. I think he is talented, but I also think he's just entering a fight here that I don't think he's ready for really. And I think five rounds is a big question for him, dude, especially at heavyweight, man. It is tough to go 25 minutes at heavyweight. So yeah, maybe he knocks him out early. But if he doesn't, I think he's going to get owned, to be honest. Uh, I like Volkov a good bit. Yeah, I 
terms of a prop, I don't really feel passionate about a prop here, to be honest. I just like the Volkov money line. He's going to be a dog. I don't really have a great read on over or under because so much has to do with, you know, Volkov's not really the kind of guy, if he has you tired, who's going to like bite his mouthpiece and go crazy. He's kind of just going to fight his fight. Maybe that's enough to get Aspinall out of there, but it might not be. He might just go to a decision. I think Aspinall has decent, has a good bit more finishing upside than Volkov does personally. Um, but yeah, I just like Volkov straight up here. That's who I would say to bet. Uh, I am fading the, the the gas tank of Aspinall here, which is could be a question mark still, right? But I feel like I have enough data to kind of believe that Volkov will be able to cash those round three or four, round four tickets as well, especially at the price that we're getting for Volkov. Now, last thing I'll say about this matchup, then we'll get into three best prop bets. This is a year where Francis Ngannou won a five-round decision with wrestling. Okay, let's, let's throw yeah. that out there. Anything is possible. Anything is fucking possible. But if Tom Aspinall goes out there and doesn't empty his gas tank in the first round and wins a 25-minute kickboxing matchup against Volkov, I will eat my hat. I'll just throw that. I'll eat my hat if Aspinall is able to outstrike him how Cyril Gan did against Alexander Volkov. I, I just don't see it happening. I, I really don't think so. I think the body work of Volkov is going to catch up to him. Yeah. And I think even if Aspinall doesn't have a crazy cardio issue, he's going to have difficulty dealing with the size and style of Volkov, who is very difficult for a lot of people here. All right. I think we did more than enough justice on our guy Volkov there. Again, I was hoping that you'd be on the Aspinall side so that we can have a legitimate debate, but is what it One, is. Like, hey, look, if Aspinall knocks out Volkov, I'm done fading. If he beats Volkov, <laughs> I'm done. I'm done. I, and that's at the point now. I need to, like, stop chasing. Look, I faded him with Arlovsky. I'm fading him here. If he beats Volkov, though, then, look, I said it. I think he's talented. I will call him legit. I'm not ready to. I'm not there yet, though. There you go. And DXJC, I will eat the hat if he wins a 25-minute kickboxing match. That's what I said. 25 kickboxing, 25-minute kickboxing match. Not if he knocks him out in the first round, because again, this is MMA. It could absolutely happen. Maybe Volkov's chin doesn't show up that night. But I have 43 fights worth of data to suggest that his chin will more than likely show up this weekend. All right. Uh again, I said I was hoping that you'd be on the Aspinall side so that we could have a heated debate. And uh with me introducing who my guest is going to be for tomorrow's Ultimate Wayne show, I can guarantee you that I will not be having that debate because my guy Clint McLean, aka Die Hard MMA is going to be on the podcast tomorrow. And I know he likes the Volkov side as well. Uh yeah, uh Clint Again, Die Hard MMA. We're going to be doing the podcast tomorrow. We are doing our Deadlock podcast tonight. Uh, so make sure you guys go check that out on the Deadlock podcast channel. Uh, that's where we're just talking more so storylines rather than betting. But we will be talking about betting for UFC London tomorrow. So make sure you guys check us out. 3 p.m. Eastern is when we're going to be going live. All right. Let's get into the three best prop bets here. Uh, ba -ba 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 -ba. All right. First one. I got Volkov, Aspinall, under three and a half. Uh, even money here. Again. Aspinall could maybe find that knockout early in this fight. If not, I think Volkov pieces him up and eventually finds that finish, excuse me, in his own right, probably by the fourth round, hoping it's early fourth round so we don't have to sweat that under three and a half too much. Uh, next up, I like the Grundy VAKL plus 750. I think that he could uh, wear on Makwan here. I think this fight could go late, and then eventually uh, Makwan a little bit sloppy later in fights, and I feel like Grundy has enough knockout power to take full advantage of that, and I think he could find that knockout. Plus 750 is just absolutely a crazy line. And lastly, I got Hooker via decision plus 200. Love that spot here. I think he pieces up Allen over 15 minutes, takes home a decision victory. I am not scared about hometown cooking or hometown judging because if this fight goes the way that I believe it's going to go, 
it's not even going to be close. So I'm not even going to have to worry about that decision line hitting here. All right, John, let's spin it on over to you, brother. Who you got? Let's do it. Yeah. <clears throat> First off, got value by decision. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I think he should be a decent favorite here. I don't really rate him much finishing upside here. So I kind of think, yeah, I mean, a victory for value is pretty tied to decision. I like that. Second fight up, we got the Craig Krulov. Fight goes the distance. This one could be sweaty, but really, I think if Krulov takes, you know, the path of least resistance, which is an outside striking match, he's not super likely to finish Craig. And even if he takes to the mat, Craig's only been subbed one time. There's a pretty good chance that Krulov's just going to float on top. I think this should be closer to even money. So I think plus 150, you're getting a decent line here. And last up, we have the Jordan and Mokaya fight goes the distance. Look, guys, it's a 125-pound fight. Jordan's a better grappler than anyone Mokaya has fought before. Most 125 pounds fights don't finish to begin with. I don't really think even if Durden slows down that he's very likely to get taken down and tapped. Um, and I don't really think either guy has tremendous KO upside. So this is something that I think should be priced closer to like minus 150, minus 185 range. At plus 130, I think it's a great spot to send it. I love it. I love it. Unfortunately, no prop bets from my guy Cody today. He hasn't been able to get back to me on those. So if you guys want to check out his stuff, make sure you guys follow him on uh, Twitter at CJ Slavtic, and he'll have his prop bets posted up for you guys on fight day. All right. Um, I, I want to keep talking about Aspinall Volkov because I just feel like all this Aspinall love is just ridiculous. But again, I might lose a couple of subscribers and all that shit by the time uh, this fight happens if Aspinall actually goes out there and wins. Uh, but yeah. Uh, <laughs> yes, we are anti hype train betters. That's where you make but it. But it's like, folks. it's not even like, like, Volkov's one of the best fighters in the world in the division. Like, it's not like I'm fading him with some bum, you know? It's not like we're betting Rodrigo <laughs> Vargas to go out beat Patty Pula. Yeah. It's not like we're beating fucking Jaya Herbert to go beat Ilya Taporia. We're beating, we're betting one of the best heavyweights of all time, proven heavyweights of all time yeah, against so the guy that we'll could happens. be, you know, first round robust, essentially. That's what his record indicates. Anytime he's gone into the second round, he's lost. Although well, one of them fight. be a, a legal DQ, but uh, besides the last fight, again, even in that fight, uh, again, I don't want to get into this, John. You're dragging me back into it. <laughs> I don't. I feel like they've heard us suck off Volkov more than enough now, so let's just leave it to the fight to see how it actually goes down. Uh, John, I'll give you the platform, as always, on the back end here to wrap it up. Uh, well, anything you want to plug, Brian, brother? Um, yeah, guys, Club and Sub Podcast every Wednesday night, 10 p.m. Eastern. We have a good time over there. Check it out. Uh, you can find me on Twitter, MMA Fox. If you guys want to chat anytime, hit me up, DM, whatever. I love talking fights. I love talking betting. I'm always around. Uh, other than that, good luck on your bets this weekend. Also, may or may not do a spaces during the fights on Saturday. We'll see. But if so, hop in. If you want to chat, you can do the request. I'll throw you on the stage. So check it out. There you guys go. A ton of content coming from both of us here for the rest of the week. So make sure you guys go check that shit out. Uh, again, uh, tonight, 7.30 p.m. Eastern, Deadlock Podcast. Me and Clint going to be talking to the biggest storylines that are happening in MMA right now. That's on the Deadlock Podcast channel. Make sure you guys go check that out and subscribe to that. Uh, and then uh, tomorrow, 3 p.m. Eastern, Ultimate Wayne Show. Me and Clint going over the fights for you guys one last time, giving our last thoughts, especially after the, the weigh-ins go down as well. Uh, uh, fight day live chat normally goes down at 1 p.m. Eastern, but that's when the fights are starting. So I think I'm going to go with either a 10 a.m. or 11 a.m. fight day live chat time. So make sure you guys hop on for that, and I'll be doing my Instagram live Waffles right after that as well. Uh, no, coffee, cannabis, chat? and combat. <laughs> coffee, cannabis, and combat, John. You should know this. The triple C comes out on early fight days 
with your boy. But uh, yeah, make sure you guys don't get caught napping 1 p.m. Eastern prelim start time on Saturday for this UFC London card. All right, John, appreciate you hopping on as always. Good luck to everybody that's in the chat. This may be a highly debatable fight card. Uh, we all may talk shit to each other, but at the end of the day, it's all love. Appreciate everybody checking out the show as always. Whether you're team Aspinall, whether you're team Volkov, whether you're team Allen, whether you're team Hooker, doesn't matter. Appreciate you guys checking out the show on a weekly basis. Because uh, if it wasn't for you guys, we wouldn't be able to do this thing uh, the way that we're doing it. All right. Good luck to everybody. But most importantly, good luck to the Volkov backers. We'll see you guys next week. Peace.